Sorry about that. This is The Watchman Live. I'm Randy Moggins. I'm your <laughs> beguiled host for the next two hours of panic and chaos. <laughs> panic and chaos. It's, it's really difficult. Laughing in the background with me is my friend G- Visigoth. Yeah, Gizavoth. And, uh, I go by that name, too. <laughs> and with us tonight, for what I consider to be a rather serious subject... Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to be speaking with William Ramsey, who's the author of um, Prophet of Evil, <laughs> Alistair Crowley, 9-11 in the New World Order. And hopefully you've all gotten over to the web page for the show, and there's some links there as well. A um, <clears throat> little disclaimer on the front end of this show. Um, this show is intended for adults with discernment. The subjects that we're going to discuss tonight may be explicit, and not appropriate for children or sensitive adults. The purpose of this program is not to magnify or fascinate with occult fascination, but to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. That was given to us by the Watchmen Live legal department. Anyway, on with it. Uh, uh, William Ramsey, welcome to Watchmen Live, the madness that it is. Great, thank you for having me. Yeah, and you're nice and loud, too. I like that. Um, and of course, my my esteemed colleague um, Keith Hansen, aka Visigoth, or, or Gizavoth, to do that. Gizavoth. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the subject is actually deadly serious. This book, um, uh, I the way this came about was that uh, some of you know um, Keith did an interview with William on uh, Thinkorbeat a few weeks ago, and we decided that we wanted to spin this off into a live program to give it the appropriate breathing room to bring out some of the things that didn't come out in that interview. And uh, there's a lot to this in terms of background and in terms of actually where this book is going to take us because I don't think most people still realize the occult influences that sit in every corridor of power in this country and, in fact, the nations of the world. That's, just, that's the nature of the world we live in. And the numerics behind Occult 9-11... And what I've called Crowley's curse, I don't think that's exhausted yet. And I think as you begin to understand um, what he's broken out in the study, you're going to see that uh, there's a reason why we're supposed to understand what he's brought out. So uh, I guess let's just kind of maybe trek through a little bit of background on this. And William, maybe first off you could uh, give us some background on how you got to writing this book what, what, what moved you into writing a book about Aleister Crowley? Yeah, that's a great question. I really knew nothing about Crowley about three or four years ago. I came to Crowley through 9-11. I was a pretty much an armchair researcher into 9-11, and uh, I realized around 2003 and 2004 that the official story was a fraud, and so I really just researched it in depth. I read everything I could, watched every movie I could, and I kept seeing these numbers that were uh, seemed to be significant. There was a pattern, this numbers 11, 93, 77. I was trying to determine why they were so uh, prevalent through, you know, the date of September 11th. And uh, what it led me back to was just a general reading of the occult. I began reading uh, books that had never been open to me before. I was I considered myself a history buff. I was a history major in college. So I read people like Robert Anton Wilson, and uh, I kept seeing these numbers. That's where I learned about the, the, the prevalence or the importance of these numbers, and it led me back to Crowley as pretty much the 
uh, basis of where these numbers uh, derive their importance in, in regards to the event of 9-11. So uh, the numbers 11, 77, 93, and 175 are very relevant to the religious system that Crowley put together. And uh, that's what led me to write the book. I then began to write a lot or read a lot of the autobiographical or biographical material and autobiographical material about Crowley. Crowley wrote a 900-page uh, autobiography when he was 47, and I read the biographical material, and then I wrote, read the actual core works of Crowley, the, the stuff that he wrote, and I realized that there was a lot there, a lot of material that I think was important and that was omitted from the biographical record. So I basically put this book together as kind of a proof that uh, 9-11 was not merely a political event, but a spiritual event as well, and uh, the implications, I thought, were far more vast than even some of other researchers have uh, delved into. I have a question, if I could, Randy. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting, William. Um, you said you were a history major in college. And right, right then when you said that, I was going to say, well, you know, how in the world could you ever really know what went on? Because we all know what we get taught uh, from uh, public school into college with regard to uh, a sanitized version, definitely a tweaked version of history, both domestically and abroad. So the fact you're a history major, I think, would almost preclude you from doing exactly what you did. And, of course, Robert uh, Anton Wilson is not necessarily in any uh, <laughs> academic canon. Right, agreed. And, I mean, I think that you make an excellent point. I actually, when I received my, uh, you know, Bachelor of Arts degree, it was really a stepping stone into really getting a, a real reading of history. That was, I had to go back and reread everything and delve off into other corridors of learning to actually obtain what I consider to be a proper education outside of institutional education in America. So I don't, I don't consider my, uh, you know, probably I spent more time reading outside of my curriculum than and in to get a proper understanding of uh, the world we live in. So, if you got hip then during the time you were in college, at least, um, I'm sure you had to do a lot of knuckle biting so you didn't say anything to the profs who don't like to be challenged or to be uh, uh, suggested that there is something outside of the myopic uh, view they have of history. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is it's not just uh, the issue with what you're learning, but the professors are prevented from telling a, uh, a fully accurate view of history as well. So there's a lot of controls of, of the knowledge that I think is given out in the American institutional system for sure. All right. Well, uh, that takes care of me for right now. Randy, I know you have a you know, whole host of questions to ask him, and by all means, you know, go ahead and do so. I mean, we had the two hours and folks in reference that. Uh, we did a lot on Crowley, although we think we should do something here as well for those who didn't hear um the show that I did with William, or some of the other shows you did as well. So um, I'll defer to you as well if uh, you're up and ready to go. Well, feel free to jump in at any time, too. Um, yeah, I guess the best place to start is maybe, William, you can give us a background with maybe some of the colorful highlights on Crowley's... <laughs> I don't even know how to describe this person because he seems almost to be like... And you said it, this is a spiritual thing. This guy looks to me like the spawn of something extremely evil from an early age, including uh, what you described as his his uh, distinguishing uh, birthmarks. You want to? Yeah, he he wrote 
Yeah, he wrote of himself as a, uh, you know, he was had a, a specifically divine birth uh, with a swastika on his uh, chest. And uh, so he had a very high opinion of himself uh, from a very early early life. He also exhibited signs of, you know, cruelty and lack of empathy for others uh, by his own admission from a very early age. Uh, he was a uh, the offspring from a very rigid sect of the Plymouth Brethren called the Exclusive Brethren, and uh, the leader of that sect was a person by the name of uh, John Nelson Darby, and he wasn't allowed to read anything at home other than the Bible until he was 12, so I think he felt stultified growing up. Uh, he also was, uh, because he was the only son, he was uh, privileged, and uh, he was able to obtain the best type of learning from or education from private tutors and uh, what would be called public schools in England, but they're private schools, uh, noted private schools, much like the American system maybe of uh, Andover or Exeter or something like that, the equivalent in England. And uh, so he really had a terrific education. But, uh, you know, at an early age, he, he seemed to uh, gravitate away from the religious training of his parents and he stated, you know, I was not content to believe in a personal devil and serve him in the ordinary sense of the word. I wanted to get a hold of him personally and become his chief of staff. So you know, his turning away from uh, the Christian faith of his parents uh, seemed to happen at a, you know, in his teens and uh, accelerated, you know, uh, for throughout his life when he went off to Cambridge and, uh, you know, continued his learning. Uh, he also, okay, no, uh, he also just, had, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, I was just going to say he had a he had it is it is his private schools. Uh, they were also very uh, they had severe punishments for any type of wrongdoing. Uh, he was continually beaten. He had a six month punishment where he was fed on bread and water. He was on he was forbidden to play, and uh, he was uh, forced into grueling walks that actually almost killed him. He was that had to be taken out of that school. Uh, he recalls that. He had 15 minutes of prayer, 15 strokes of the cane, 15 minutes of prayer, 15 more strokes and more prayer on top of it. So there's this kind of strange um, uh, conglomeration of, you know, this brutal whippings and, and religious instruction uh, from his from his early youth. And I think that might have skewed him or definitely had an influence upon him in his later life. Uh, so, uh, he, like I said, he exhibited signs of, of cruelty at an early age. He talked about killing a cat. Uh, and really torturing it. He said, I've been told a cat has nine lives. I deduced that it must be practically impossible to kill a cat. As usual, I became full of ambition to perform the feat. I therefore caught a cat, and having administered a large dose of arsenic, I chloroformed it, hanged it above the gas jet, stabbed it, cut its throat, smashed its skull, and when it had been pretty thoroughly burnt, drowned it, and threw it out the window that the fall might remove the ninth life. So, uh, you know, here's this exhibition of, uh, you know, one of the hallmark carrying cards of a psychopath, and this is, uh, you know, an event that happened to him when he was 14 or 15. William, not to let him off the hook. Everybody's responsible for themselves to a certain point, but I, I would say that it really isn't all that unusual to find out that, <clears throat> excuse me, to find out that some of the uh, prolific characters in the occult uh, might have had a very Christian upbringing, and I put Christian in uh, quotation marks, my <clears throat> uh, uh, there are other tales about people being deep into that and then just rebelling and becoming pretty much, I guess, the opposite of what they had been in. Uh, 
you kind of alluded to that, but is that the case with Crowley that, you know, I don't know that things might have been different, but let me just say, do you think that he was exposed to what I would call, you know, a questionable Christian uh, uh, cult even, and, uh, and that drove him the other way? It seems like it. I mean, I think in his mind he said uh, the forces of good were those which had constantly oppressed me. I saw them daily destroying the happiness of my fellow men. Since, therefore, it was my business to explore the spiritual world, my first step must be getting into personal communication with the devil. So he believed in the spiritual world. He just, uh, you know, drifted or went into the dark side. And uh, as, as his own admission, he said he became white hot on in the occult when he went off into Cambridge. So... I think that uh, I think that's a good point. I think that for him, that was you know one of his rationales for why he he was the way he was, and he was he's an extreme example of uh, an occultist, somebody who was able to dedicate all of his life to the study and knowledge and practice of occult sciences. Uh, seeing that he, upon his uh, father's death, it's estimated that the inheritance in today's terms was something around twenty million dollars. So. He had a substantial fortune and was able to travel the world, study, and, uh, you know, partake in the, the lifestyle of a uh, cultist full-time. That spiritual atmosphere in which he was uh, brought up, were they necessarily involved in any kind of, shall we say, mysticism? Um, I think that they were fundamentalists, is my understanding. They had... Uh, That's mine. They were... Yeah, they had a very fundamentalist, literalist view of the Bible, and, uh, you know, they, they, there was definitely, uh, you know, as far as mysticism, he recalled that there were always the emphasis upon revelation, so the kind of, you know, but he seemed to identify the dragon, the false prophet, the beast, and the scarlet woman as things that were more interesting for him. But as far as uh, Christian mysticism, I, I didn't quite get that feeling as much. Okay, thank you. That, that, under, that understanding. Yeah, it was, and again, I'm going to ask you to please hold off your calls until the second hour. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to block you because we're going to have this conversation uninterrupted. Well, I want to jump in on something else here, but if I could. Is that all right, Randy? Yeah, no, please go ahead. I've got to deal with this. Okay, not a problem. Um, I was going to ask you, secondly, and in, you know, in a way, his story sometimes reminds me of uh, James Joyce, who uh, was raised in a very ascetic, uh, quote, Christian uh, setting, and seemed pretty much to rebel. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know about Yeats necessarily. I wouldn't be surprised if it were the same thing. And, of course, Yeats and Crowley were kind of like, you know, I mean, they were contemporaries, but from what I can understand, uh, they didn't have much of a fond feeling for one another. Uh, and I don't know if there was some kind of thing going on, especially in the United Kingdom at that time, I'm not picking on them necessarily, but uh, are we looking at a time, too, uh, that might have been on the heels of theosophy? I mean, are we looking at a strong uh, influence of a, quote, new religion uh, that uh, uh, Crowley might have uh, got in on the coattails of? Absolutely. I think that uh, the late 19th century was full of a movement called spiritualism, where people were uh, doing seances. They were interested in new information that was... Uh, coming into England at that time as uh, openings of uh, communication and transportation were really taking place. England was at the height of its empire. The sun never set on the British Empire at that time. And uh, there was this huge upswing in kind of Hinduistic ideas, yoga, and uh, 
these other, you know, newer ideas. Masonry was always there. Theosophy had a, and under Blavatsky had a huge Hinduistic, uh, you know, uh, uh, influence and he definitely was very aware. Crowley was one of those people who was very well read and he was also very well informed on other movements. He had the time and inclination to really absorb a lot of these, uh, these different themes and, uh, which is one of the reasons right after he got out of Cambridge, he joined the Golden Dawn where he came in contact with William Butler Yeats and, uh, they basically butted heads, uh, during their time together at the, in the Golden Dawn. And, uh, I think Yeats said something that the Golden Dawn was not a moral reformatory. So Crowley's reputation was already pretty much established, uh, right then when he was about 23 or 24 coming out of Cambridge, and the Golden Dawn was a repository of all of these new strains of occultism. Uh, he was part Rosicrucian. They had theosophist, theosophical ideas. Uh, the, the three founders were all high-level Masons, and uh, they, you know, inculcated all these other ideas, the tarot, uh, lots of ritual magic, and uh, it was really a hodgepodge, but it really emphasized... Uh, ritual magic is a as a means of you know uh, growing the self and uh, learning. There was also this is where Crowley kind of picked up his uh, notion of the importance of the number eleven, which is uh, you know he says eleven is the essence of all that is sinful, harmful, and imperfect. Uh, it symbolizes destruction, violence, defeat, and death. And this is from the book of one of the founders of the Golden Dawn, by a guy by the name of William Wynn, Wynn Westcott. Uh, so you see the the primacy of that number, uh, you know, uh, be- became, you know, uh, something of import to Crowley and something that he picked up on. Uh, and I know we're going to go into the numerology, which I, I did very little with, so um, I'm glad we were able to go into that realm very shortly. But I did want to say one thing, too, and that is when you recount his um, uh, basically murdering of an, of an animal, a cat, um, this kind of thing happens far too often and usually if not always it's an indicator that we've got somebody who's got some problems uh in fact i'll tell you uh we were trying to place three kittens once two of them were black and we brought them to a a shelter and the woman looked at the two black cats with this kind of like you know sad concern look i said what's the matter and she says well they're black and i'm like don't tell me (laughs) and she knew where i was going and she said oh yeah but my point is too william and this guy was not necessarily uh, you know, whatever his upbringing was, there's something different about somebody who's willing to experiment. I mean, we've all might have thrown a rock at a bird and maybe hit it and been sick to our stomach like the old Opie thing in, in Andy and Mayberry. But to go ahead and actually premeditatedly exterminate a life of a somewhat, I mean, I'm not going to call it sentient being, but, you know, uh, that, I mean, there's something going on there, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I think that, like, one of the three foundations of a psychopath is uh, obsession with fire, torture of animals, and I think the third is bedwetting or something. So Crowley at least had one of those. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a serious indication of, uh, you know, mal, maladjusted character for certain. So, you know, I, that's why I included in the book, because through the later parts of his life, he really showed very little empathy for others. He uh, saw himself as of supreme importance, and I think his doctrines and religion reflected that. He, uh, you know, really was uh, really about himself, and a lot of even ceremonial magic, the basic 
uh, gist of the whole process is really the ennoblement and the uh, growth of your individual self. It's kind of egotistical just by its nature. Well, it's just the whole that that whole saying. I mean, that that they embrace the axiom of "Do with that will shall be the whole of the law." I mean. Uh, it strikes me as incredibly selfish because, yeah, all right, fine, but what is doing what thou wilt steps all over somebody else who would do what thou wilt. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, the notion of do what thou wilt is you do what your will is. And, uh, you know, there were all, there's other, there's disputations amongst Crowley and his followers about what happens when, you're doing your will and it intercedes with somebody else's will. Well, Crowley really didn't have an, have an answer for it, you know. Uh, and there were other time types in his life where people said, well, you say that the slaves shall serve. What about the slaves? Are they doing their will? And Crowley refused to answer that. So I think he knew that, you know, the, the idea itself was uh, going to be to somebody else's detriment, you know, if you were really exercising your own true will. So it's, it's really, for me, it's an inversion of do unto others what you would have them do unto you because that, that doctrine is taking concern for other people uh, and his doctrine is utterly egotistical and selfish. Could we, um, were you able to ascertain from your research, uh, based on the strength of his personality, he built a cult based pretty much on his own will and actually moved into different circles of mysticism uh, and was able to dominate them just by his will. Do you think oh. that uh, he was he was possibly uh, enough of a, di- a didactic person that he was constraining uh, the people around him, while at the same time giving the pretense of the so-called liberty that he was he was espousing? In other words, it was kind of the bait for the trap to get people into his cult. Yeah, I would say so. I think that, uh, you know, there are commentators. I tried to include as many people in my book who witnessed Crowley and, and his uh, relations with others. And, you know, they were very impressed by him. He was clearly very intelligent, erudite. And uh, But they, there were comments about his followers. Like, here was this guy who thought of himself as a god and surrounded by these kind of toadies who just followed him at every word. So... Uh, there was definitely that type of relationship with his followers. He was like a cult leader of the early 20th century in, in a lot of ways. And I apologize, I lost my train again uh, because we have somebody that was trying to break into the call, so that person's been blocked now permanently. Such are the uh, <laughs> the vicissitudes of live radio, huh? Um, can we kind of like maybe go forward a little bit? I'd like to get into... Uh, some of the relationships, particularly his marriages, and what happened to those wives, because I think it's very telling exactly how controlling he was and how dark he was. Yeah, he uh, he had uh, he had open relationships. He was also bisexual, but he had these consorts or wives. Some of them were married. He married, and some didn't. But um, they assist him in his magical practices. And most of them uh, led lives to ruin. There was really only one that got away sane because she just ran off and, and took off. Her name was Mary Desty. Her son would become Preston Sturges, who is a famous film director of the 30s. And he had some interesting things to say about Crowley. But his oh, first wife was... Uh, say that again. The, a film star of the 30s, what was the connection? There? Yeah, Preston Sturges was... Oh. Uh, 
his mother was one of Crowley's consorts for a while. They uh, were together while Crowley wrote his book. Uh, it was called Book Four, and uh, they spent time in the south of Italy. And Sturges was at uh, at boarding school at the time and spent a summer with, summer with them. And uh, he uh, he explained he said about Crowley in his biography that uh, he he described Crowley as his entire skull shaved except for one small tufted square in the exact middle of his cranium. That was kind of Crowley's kind of phallus. But uh, Crowley called him a brat in his. He called uh, Sturgis a brat, the most a most godforsaken lout in his autobiography. But Sturgis said, "The practitioner and staunch defender of every form of vice historically known to man, generally accepted as one of the most depraved, vicious, and revolting humbugs who has ever escaped from a nightmare or lunatic asylum, universally despised and enthusiastically expelled from every country he ever tried to live in." Mr. Crowley, nevertheless, was considered by my mother not to be not only the epitome of charm and good manners, but the, also the possessor of one of the very few genius bathed brains she had been privileged to observe at work during the entire lifetime. Ask me not why. So um, he had, uh, you know, everybody who pretty much saw Crowley saw him as a very dark figure, except seemingly these women that he was able to uh, impress with his personality and kind of uh, mesmerize. Uh, but uh, they spent time in southern but southern, uh, southern Italy, and, and Preston also said as he returned to boarding school, he said, reading about some of his subsequent exploits, I realized that my mother and I were lucky to escape with our lives. If I had been a little older, he might not have, has, he might not have escaped with his. So uh, they clearly didn't like each other. But uh, she was one of the few to get away, uh, and, uh, but some of the others didn't. Unfortunately, his first wife was Mary Kelly. Her brother was Gerald Kelly, who became the head of the Royal Society in England. So, uh, the, you know, these connections were kind of aristocratic-type people. But uh, Mary uh, uh, Kelly, she ended up in an insane asylum. Uh, there was another one who was by the name of Demira Marsh. She ended up in an insane asylum, too. She saw demons under her bed for the last 30 years of her life. Uh, there was another one he punched in the face so hard that it broke the bones around her eye socket, and uh, she was in... Uh, she had needed medical attention for a month. Uh, another one by the name of Hanny Yeager went back to Germany where she was from and uh, drank herself to death. So it's a, it was a very sordid, awful, you know, uh, just a, a swath of wreckage that Crowley left in his relationships. There's another one by the name of, uh, oh, good Lord, what's her name? Uh, anyway, she Crowley abandoned her for another woman in Paris and left her to a life of, uh, prostitution of the most destitute kind, and uh, so and a lot of them. Some of them he unfortunately branded on the chest with uh, what he called his sign, the mark of the beast, which was a conjunction of uh, the moon and the sun. So you, I have pictures in my book of these women with actual literal brands, like you'd brand a cow on their chest. Uh, so he had some very vicious past, you know, practices and. Uh, there are rec records of some of his parent, you know, his scarlet women. He made them wear strange clothing, uh, particularly when they were at his kind of uh, church or religious abbey uh, that was in Cefalu, Italy. And uh, so his relationship with women, he was definitely kind of uh, had a uh, male-centered religion, and uh, he didn't think much of women. He had some, uh, his, some of his commentary on women was, of the most base sort. 
Now, you mentioned the book, and maybe this is a good place because I I will forget later. Um, Tell listeners about the book and where they can obtain it. We do have a link on the the page of the Threshing Floor website as well that gives some links, but go ahead and give that out too, William, so they can locate the book. Sure, they can find it. The title is Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11 in the New World Order. You can find it on Kindle. It'll be on... uh, iBooks for the iPad or Apple's distribution uh, within four to six weeks. And uh, it's also on my website. I can send you a PDF copy and a soft cover copy if you're uh, curious. I can also send out all my research. I've got thousands of pictures and all of his books and everything like that. I can put it on CD-ROM if anybody wants to see it. If you uh, know how to use uh, uh, torrent services, there's a very good Crowley torrent out there that has quite a, most of his books, not all of them, but... Uh, you just have to look up Aleister Crowley, and you can just download that if you know how to use UTorn or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I actually obtain, sometimes illegally, but hopefully not, uh, yeah, PDFs and things like that off BitTorrent. Um, the website, by the way, is uh, occult911.com, and if you uh, punch that into your search engine, that will take you over to William's site. Um, Keith, anything you want to kick in with at this yeah, point? I- I do. Uh, we didn't really lay a baseline down uh, for Crowley, but um, William, he's born, what, 1875, dies 1947? Correct. All right, now there's something else, too, and um, I'm just dealing with this a little bit um, with regard to World War One, the Lusitania, and Churchill, who I think was a, a rat and a half. Uh, do you have anything on, and I mean, I think we forget sometimes uh, about heads of state and war and occultism. And Hitler certainly wasn't any uh, shrinking violet when it came to that, nor do I think Churchill was. But, of course, on our side of the uh, fray, if you will, uh, we're more inclined to give slack to uh, characters like Montgomery and Churchill and Eisenhower. Um, but there is a story out there, and I think you, uh, you're you a little familiar with this. I sometimes get the uh, other principle uh, kind of mixed up, but there was a story out there that Hitler had as his main mojo guy. What was that? Uh, was that Meister Eckhart? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was either Meister or Dietrich. Dietrich yeah, because one of them is, is much earlier. And the story was that Churchill had Crowley. Uh, any truth to that? Or um, I mean, well, there are rumors that Churchill during World War II uh, uh, tried to enlist the services of Crowley through uh, the writer of the James Bond series. The guy, the writer of the James Bond series, was the name of Ian Fleming, and they were working together and. Uh, Hess was also a heavy-duty occultist. That was one of Hitler's right-hand men who had been with Hitler since the 20s. He had flown out to England to try to try some uh, harebrained scheme to kind of stop the war, and they were going to try to have Crowley go and talk to Hess. And uh, that was the rumor, but uh, I couldn't find a lot of uh, salient evidence. There was also, you know, Crowley knew a lot about astrology. Hitler was very much of a, an astrologer, so... They were uh, trying to do magical battles, apparently, and th- those were the rumors. I couldn't find a lot of evidence for that. Yeah, I, that, but, that's, uh, well, that's where I was going, too, because uh, I'm not so sure it's urban legend, but it certainly is a uh, legend of sorts. But then you think about Hitler, when they went into the bunker, I mean, how many Buddhist monks did they find there, dead? You know, I, so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there, and it's interesting, too, about Hess, uh, because I wonder also... And, and this is going, you know, of course, a little far afield, but I wonder if Hess understood exactly what was going on and tried to talk some sense on his uh, fated trip into England. 
so that's kind of interesting as well. It's all- I, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt Hess saw things that uh, you know the world is, has been hidden from the world. I mean, Crowley and Hitler were far more similar than people uh, recognize. Crowley said of Hitler, and he he lived through the events of World War II. He said before Hitler was I am. So he uh, he really saw himself as influencing Hitler, and that's obviously you know a blasphemous uh, perversion of. Uh, you know, a noted uh, biblical statement, but uh, he, uh, he, they both had the same notion of a, of a slave state, triumph of the strong over the weak. Uh, Crowley's I, main idea was the notion of Philema. It's a Greek word meaning will. And his temple in Chephalu was called Abbey of Philema, or Abbey of the Will. And just like the do what thou wilt shall be the whole law. So it's the human will. Well, Hitler had much the same kind of principles. He had his Triumph of the Will, the movie by Lenny Riefenstahl, and this whole notion of the individual will, which is a very occult doctrine where, you know, the human will uh, can come over, you know, uh, come over all obstacles, and that was kind of Hitler's kind of idea, his struggle, or Mein Kampf, and uh, everybody noted Hitler had other talents as well, but one thing he always had was always to overcome. Uh, he had the, the willpower to pretty much overcome as many obstacles as he could all the way up until the total ruination of Germany, and uh, he, he left a you know path of destruction behind him just like Crowley did, although it was much more vast. But uh, their similarities are very you know overlapping. An obsession with the occult, uh, you know, uh, going into trances. Hitler used to self trance, and, and so did Crowley, and you know, just all kinds of magical connections between them both. But it wouldn't be a stretch then to say, uh, you know, we, we, you couldn't say this on, on Fox, CNN, NBC, or whatever, but I wouldn't be surprised if certain uh, heads of countries or whatever, in this case we're talking about Hitler and Churchill, uh, had in their um, coterie, shall we say, uh, a medicine man. Yeah, and I mean, I think that you, that's a common stream throughout all history is that you have, you know, this either some Christian external person, but there's also the uh, occult master somewhere lurking behind, whether it's an astrologer or, uh, you know, and it goes all the way back to Elizabethan era where she had her head of intelligence was also a master magician by the name of Edward Kelly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this goes all the way back. I mean, and that, that even goes back to the nexus between uh, black magic or Satanism and intelligence agencies. You see, Crowley was actually, in my opinion, an intelligence agency for, or an intelligence agent or asset for Britain uh, most of his life. He was clearly sending information back. He had associations with a number of intelligence agents. Uh, there are uh, archives that were found by uh, one researcher into Crowley in the United States that said Crowley is a known uh, asset working for the English service. And uh, if you recall in World War One, the primary goal in the relationship between England and, and the United States during the World War One was was try to get the United States into the war on the side of the Allies and uh, nullify the German influence in the United States. Well, Crowley uh, became a one of the writers for a magazine called The International, which was a pro-German propaganda piece, and he himself said that uh, he would write the worst German propaganda possible to try to <clears throat> subvert their system from the inside. And when uh, the interesting part, interestingly, Crowley was on the Lusitania, uh, on his first adventure over to the United States in 1914, and it was the sinking of the Lusitania that brought the United States into the war on the side of the Allies. And uh, 
And when he when once that happened, he wrote in his diary, "My work of two and a half years is over." Which you know he meant by that that all this time that he'd spent in the United States to try to get the United States into the war uh, was a success. So he also had he never was you know even though he was under the disguise of a German agent in the United States during World War One, he was never prosecuted by the British. He retired in England. He always was able to return to England uh, whenever he wanted to. So if he was really a traitor or, you know, doing this kind of uh, working for the other side, it was, you know, it was just a bunch of, it was just a cover. Right, real quick, I'll just jump in there, Randy. I'll give it to you. But it's, it's really interesting what you said about Crowley and the Lusitania uh, because I'll be coming out with a series based on a book that uh, is it's very revealing. Uh, and when you get to the part, uh, in the, uh, the Lusitania's history, how Churchill was involved with this and somehow just um, told the uh, protective cruiser that was out there to take the Lusitania in the port uh, was called off, taken off, told to stand down. And then that left those people in the Lusitania in sight of the mainland, and they never got there. Uh, I mean, it, to me, it is just so egregious. It's just, you know, I can... Yeah, I've read the information regarding the Lusitania, and it seems like just a full false flag set up, you know, operation. You know, and again, and, and this this will bring us into 9-11, which, you know, one of the things, William, I, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, and I know Randy has, any of us, when you talk about 9-11, I mean, it's not about, and I'm not going to go on a diatribe about this, but 9-11 isn't about the Bush administration, it's about government and its and its real uh, disposition with its citizenry. I mean, you know, when they have to, like, give up a bunch of people, they do it to trigger an event which is most likely war. So, of course, you know, I, I don't mean to make the Germans look like good guys in this, but the thing is they said, you know, you better not do this. I'm telling you right now, don't do this. And so the Lusitania came in, uh, and uh, somehow they didn't have any protection, and they were left out there, and they were sacrificed. Um, the fact that Crowley was even involved with that is uh, quite interesting, and, and of course you're right. I mean, that's the event that got uh, this emotion drummed up in the United States to go over to a European continental war. We had no business being involved with, but that's the way life goes. So thanks for right. sharing that, because that's I didn't realize Crowley got it. You know, was even on the Lusitania. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Crowley, Crowley, one of the interviewers I, I uh, talked to earlier a couple weeks ago made a very astute observation, and that Crowley was kind of like an evil. Uh, Oh gosh, what's the name of that guy? Uh, Forrest Gump. Like Forrest Gump was this, you know, movie where he was involved in all these interesting things. Well, Crowley was like that too. Everywhere he shows up, all over the place with important people, important events. He almost uh, made it to the United States during the earthquake of 1906. He was, uh, you know, involved in the Lusitania. Some of his followers were associated with Hitler. He was all over the, you know, he had met Hemingway, Mencken. Yates, uh, he was involved in all these important magical organizations that are still influencing occultists today. Uh, he, you know, associated with politicians. He experimented with drugs before everybody, you know, like he was a precursor of the 60s. He did peyote parties with important figures and just a really amazing kind of figure once you really kind of peel the onion on his personality and his actions. Um. I, I was also wondering, uh, he dies in 47. I don't know um, how effective he was in the years prior to his death, but uh, what I would like to know, too, because, again, this goes back to England and the power that it weaves, did he, uh, 
he had a relationship, uh, or at least a working one. Let's, I'll be clear about this. With uh, Orwell, did he not? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I need to do more research about that. But Orwell clearly had read Crowley, and uh, he had a relationship with one of Crowley's prime followers in England, a person by the name of Gerald York. Uh, uh, Orwell or Blair went to school with York's brother, and uh, <clears throat> uh, there are some of some of uh, Orwell's biographers have talked about how Orwell went through a time in his life when he was reading a lot of. Uh, kind of occult material, uh, one of the people being Crowley. And uh, in the intro to 1984, there's a couple interesting uh, references to Crowley's system. He talks in like the 99th to third, uh, third year plan, so he juxtaposes the nine and three right next to each other. I argue that's not by uh, mistake, that it's in there intentionally as one of Crowley's numbers. And the importance of 93, just to kind of lay the groundwork is 93 is, well, Crowley used the Kabbalah. So through he learned the Kabbalah when he was at the Golden Dawn, and the Kabbalah has three different subparts of interpretations of words. One's called the Gematria, where every word has a numerical representation. And uh, through the Gematria in the Greek Gematria, the words Thelema and Agape, which are primary words for Crowley, both equal to 93. And in the Hebrew, the word AWAS equals 93 as well. So 93 is a very important uh, number for Crowley, and then we see that in the events of 9-11 where one of the planes was Flight 93 as well. You uh, you just mentioned Philema, and maybe you can explain a little bit about what that is. That was actually going to be my follow-up question to that. Well, Philema is, is just the word for will, and do what thou wilt shall be the whole of law became Crowley's uh, word of the, of the aeon or the new age, that was his kind of idea. He received that in 1904 as uh, something, a uh, very important event or the most important event for him in his life, which was the reception of the Book of the Law that occurred in uh, Cairo, Egypt, after he and his wife had visited there. Uh, the, his wife started yammering about, uh, they're waiting for you, and he started doing an investigation, and according to her, what these entities or spirits wanted was to, for him to uh, show up in a room for three days and write down what he was told. And uh, the the result of that was a 65-page book called the Book of the Law. And uh, in the Book of the Law, there were three different kind of uh, Egyptian godheads who uh, spoke to him. But uh, what uh, Crowley would be, according to them, was the prophet of this new aeon, which is Crowley's words for age, and his supreme commandment would be evangelized to the world, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law is 11 words and 11 syllables. So you see the 11 pop up again. And uh, uh, basically, philema is the word for will. So do what thou wilt or will is philema. And that was the name of his abbey, which was kind of modeled on the earlier abbey of Medmaham, which is also called the Hellfire Club of Sir Francis to Dashwood. And uh, so this this uh, idea of philema or personal will kind of suffuses his entire religion and life. Is this, is this the same Hellfire Club that Ben Franklin allegedly <laughs> frequented as well? I, I had to ask. I know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, this is very important because uh, those Hellfire Clubs influenced Crowley, and uh, they, they influenced 
the modern Hellfire Club, well, my argument is the modern Hellfire Club of our age, which is the Bohemian Club or Bohemian Grove. Right. So uh, they have the same doctrines. They have the same ideas of silence uh, that Crowley uh, uh, took from from uh, the Hellfire Club. And the Hellfire Club of that England, England time of the late 19th century, or 18th century, excuse me, uh, Sir Francis Dashwood was a person, he was a very wealthy person, an aristocrat much like Crowley, who uh, he, he called it, uh, what, what uh, Sir Francis Dashwood called it was the Knights of St. Francis of Wycombe, or the Franciscas of Medmenham. It was an abbey, and they all used to wear these, uh, these ab- outfits of monks. But their practices were utterly profane. They used to hold black masses. They would uh, cart in prostitutes and basically just drink the entire time. Uh, the first, and they, they, they got the term Hellfire Club from an earlier Hellfire Club before Sir Francis Dashwood. So it just, it was a label that stuck. But yeah, uh, Benjamin Franklin was, uh, known to be there, King George the Third. All of the kind of people that the United States was up against, the lords who were making the decisions for the colonies at that time were all members of this Hellfire Club. So it was, uh, Sandwich, the Earl of Sandwich, Butte, uh, I think one guy's name was Buller. They were all lords, but, uh, was right up the Thames of the Thames from London and they used to take boats to go there. And, uh, their, on their entranceway was, uh, a French word by, that went by, which means do what thou wilt. So uh, here you see this kind of continuum. And uh, that do what thou wilt goes through Crowley. And then they also had, uh, Dashwood had traveled all around Europe. He had done what was used to be known the Grand Tour. So uh, wealthy people from England would take six months or a year and travel to all the great uh, civilizations of Europe, go to France and, and Italy. But he had picked up a lot of, apparently picked up a lot of occult uh, things from secret societies in Italy, and one was this kind of notion of wisdom and silence, or silence of Hippocrates, who is the uh, Egyptian god for silence, where you you know take your finger and you put up your mouth, so you have silence. So the entrance into the Abbey, uh, the Hellfire Club of Sir Francis Dashwood, had this person making the silence. Well, Crowley has his own sign of silence in the same form as the god of Hippocrates. You can see it in my book. He's making that gesture, and then. Mm-hmm. It goes all the way up to the Bohemian Grove, and the entrance to the Bohemian Grove, you have this Bohemian cleric or a guy by the name of St. John of Nepomuk who never spoke uh, because he, what he did is uh, he would take the confessions of all of the elites of Bohemia, and the queen tried to get all those confessions, so she had dirt on her uh, enemies, and he never, he never uh, talked about it. But that statue of St. John of Nepomuk that is that the entrance to the Bohemian Globe is also making the same gesture with the right hand. So there's a continuum. They're all making the sign of Harpocrates. But, so there's a continuum from the Hellfire Club through Crowley to the Bohemian Grove. Uh, as we're going up to the top of the hour, and, and uh, we'll get into more, I guess, of an, uh, an ordered sequence, uh, which we agreed upon. But just as we get these last couple of minutes in, because this sets up what we're going to do in the second hour, and that is, and Randy, I, I can't speak for you, but I think you probably, in your time in and around New York, um, <laughs> uh, so, some people around Peter Lavenda wrote about this back when. Um, what strikes me, and I think, I think you're well aware of this, Randy, and, and William, I don't think this is a throw for you at all, but, you know, those golden, um, well, <laughs> the Hellfire Clubs and the Golden Shower Clubs oh, yeah. are alive and well underground in New York, as I remember <clears throat> And the other thing I want to say, too, and, and you had mentioned this when we were talking uh, 
the three of us offline yesterday uh, about how uh, there would be, be these parties and it would be you know, kind of everybody could be there, and then all of a sudden, after hours, you shuttered everything, and then it got really down. And that's one of the things that bothered me um, in a, one of the two most disturbing movies I've ever seen, and that is what is depicted in Eyes Wide Shut. And that's very interesting because you have Kubrick, who's a Brit and such, and then you have Cruz and uh, other characters involved in this. And what you see, I mean, good people don't know what it's like to be complete uh, to bop. And, and that's what we're seeing here, are, are we not? I mean, even Franklin was a rake and a half. You know, I, as Hoffman, it was Hoffman's words, or, or Shelby Downers, I don't know. But they were saying, you know, that, that uh, Franklin, when he went over to England, which he did quite often, which makes you wonder, really, about his supposed citizenship, uh, would, like, write hymns in the daytime and go to the uh, Hellfire Club at night. But, th but that's what we're looking at. We're yeah, looking well, that at was in Hoffman's work, I think I remember reading. Right. And the so, thing so about it, well, the thing about it is, and I brought it up mainly because I live in the heart of Pennsylvania here, and Franklin is revered. I mean, you know, he's funded universities, he's got a big foundation, a famous museum. If you go into downtown Philadelphia, you'll find a statue there of Franklin in his Roman robes, and, you know, what's he telling you yeah. with, with that? So, you know... I, for for the listeners, we're, we're just kind of making a lot of loose connections that things are not what they seem and that there's an animating spiritual power behind all this that actually has a continuum. And I think... Exactly. I think William drew it, the arc back very nicely and going to the Rosicrucians because I think that's a de demarcation in, in time itself. I was kind of interested in this message uh, that related to the equinox of the gods. This was the, the prelude to uh, Crowley and his wife visiting the museum in Cairo. What was your understanding of this equinox of the gods? Do you think that... I'm beginning to see Crowley as kind of this harbinger figure who was almost like bringing in this darkness as he moved through continents and nations. It looks to me like he, there was something about him that he was almost like a harbinger figure. Absolutely, and I think that uh, he saw himself as that, frankly. I mean, he believed himself to be a prophet. He had that kind of evangelistic ideology. Uh, he was in contact with spirits, his or what I would term demons, almost his whole life. Uh, the primary one that he was always praying to was Awas, but he also had contact with Alamantra, Lamb, Abuldiz, Koranzon, um, and he uh, believed in this kind of new age of, you know, the end of humanitarianism. Uh, he believed in the end of, uh, you know, the, the coddling what he considered the weak. He wanted them destroyed. So uh, he definitely saw himself, he thought he was writing for two to four hundred years in the future. He, he saw himself as a person who was laying a groundwork, and he cultivated followers who would carry on his work, you know. And uh, in his later life, when he was in England, he, he, he basically spent most of his time writing and contacting uh, and, and meeting with people who would carry on, you know, what he considered the great work, which was the total illumination of the world. His idea of illumination. <laughs> Keith, um, I, I think I may have cut you off there. Oh, oh no, but I mean, as we're going to go into uh, the numerology, I guess especially as we uh, begin the second hour, um, and, and thinking about New York and all this other stuff, but, you know, what always struck me, and, you know, I, 
I was like 15 or so when they started building the trade towers. And we watched this because we lived on the Palisades uh, in New Jersey, high above the Hudson River, and we spent our whole life with the Statue of Liberty always over our shoulder. I mean, that was just the way that the horizon was. And when they began to build these two towers, we were like, when are they going to stop? And then we, as they got higher and higher, we kept saying, you know, like, nobody's going to fly a plane into that because it just begs for that to happen. But, you know, now I look at this, and it seems obvious, and, of course, those who uh, don't believe in conspiracies and such, I look at those towers. I mean, I mean, let's face it. I mean, a New York, and you'll remember this, I think, Randy, um, a New York channel used them uh, because their number on the VHF dial was 11. That's channel WPIX. 11, yeah, WPIX. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is 11. I mean, I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, that's 11. And I don't want to sound like Spinal Tap, but, William, I mean, I don't know how much well, you got Well, do you remember the other network channel? And I know this because... Yeah, Pittsburgh. Uh, well, no, in New York City, WOR was Channel 9. 9, that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, and all right, now, I, I, I don't want to go too far afield. I want to bring, and, but let me just say this. John Valentini, when he did all those images that he froze from movies prior to 9-11, one of the movies had two uh, newspaper, uh, uh, two broadcast journalists interviewing a cop... One was Channel 11, and one was Channel 9. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I've, I've done stuff with the Rockefellers and the whole bit about the trade towers. Not that you guys can't read the same stuff that I do. But, I mean, you know, and I was going to say, the other Channel 11, by the way, was in Pittsburgh, which was carrying Shanksville, all right, 93. I don't know. Well, anyway. and more and more, I think we've come to understand, and, and I can tell you a little about this, that actually that region out there, the western part of Pennsylvania, especially around Pittsburgh, is actually a, a major haunt of what I guess we would call the, the Illuminati, the powers that be, whatever. So, I mean, there's, there's actually a triangulation regionally on that because that's a, that's a corridor of power. That's why, by the way, uh, you saw them having the big hoodah out in Pittsburgh last summer, and they basically shut down the city. So, you know, these these are not coincidences. I think these people live by these numbers, and I think these numbers are significant. And that's kind of the setup for the second hour, by the way, for the listeners, because what we're going to do in the second hour is we're going to, William's going to kind of spin through the, 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 the numeristics of Crowley, and then I think you'll begin to see a pattern emerging that has a prophetic value to it because I don't think this has been exhausted and I think these numbers are something that we need to be aware of, which is kind of the point of doing this kind of show. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the point of why I wrote the book, really, is once I understood the correlation between the numerical significance of the events of September 11th, which happened on the 11th, and... Uh, Crowley, I, I thought, well, people really should know this and be aware because had the general public understood uh, some of these numbers first, they would have gone, okay, this is an occult event. You know, they would have seen it on that date. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Christians are, uh, are not aware of these kind of darker elements, even though they're unpleasant to kind of uh, uncover. I think it's, it's important to be aware of this, these, uh, what these people believe. It absolutely is. Okay, uh, I think we'll take about a five-minute break at this point and come back, and we'll, we'll kind of delve into it. I will take calls as well. By the way, we had two callers who were uh, overzealous in the last hour in calling in. Please, please hold calls until we 
give the request to take callers. Otherwise, you will also be banished into the uh, digital purgatory that I have sent the last two callers. So uh, hang in there, chill out. We'll go through this, and we'll, we'll make some time for you to call in as well. This is The Watchman Live. I'm Randy Moggins. I'm here with my friend Visigoth and with author William Ramsey talking about Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11, and the New World Order. We, we, we will be back in about five minutes. And we are back for the second hour of The Watchman Live show on Friday night, August 27, 2010. Joining me on the line, uh, Visigoth and William Ramsey, the author of uh, Alistair, yeah, Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11 in the New World Order, and we are going to, uh, we will take calls. Uh, there's a lot of material to cover here, and for those of you who earnestly want to join the conversation on this, we'll open up some time closer to the bottom of the hour, and if we have to, maybe we'll go even a little long. Uh, those of you who do not want to join this conversation and have another agenda, understand this, call in, with anything off topic, you will be exterminated with extreme prejudice tonight because I can't even talk at this point, so I'm cranky. Um, anyway, we want to get into the numerics of this thing because this is really the crux of the book. And um, I know Keith did a two-hour interview, and I will post links when we post the, uh, the audio onto the websites as well uh, back to those shows at Think or Be Eaten. Uh, the, the numerics in this are very interesting, and we touched lightly on it in the, the um, last hour. 9 and 11 being the two key numbers, but there's actually a whole sequence of numbers. And, William, I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and begin to thread through these numerics of Crowley and how they relate to 9-11 and even how they relate back to the occult practices that Crowley embraced and advanced. Sure. Well, uh the prim- some of the primary numbers that are related to Crowley are the numbers of the planes, 11, 93, 77, and 175. Uh, my argument and uh, what I lay out in the book is that those are there uh, for a reason. They have a purpose. They're not uh, uh, by accident. They're not random. In Crowley's system, 11, as I've kind of already kind of gone through, is, uh, was a primary number. He said that 11 is the number of magic in itself. It is therefore suitable for all types of operation. He considered it the sacred number par excellence of the new aeon or the new age. And uh, in his book of the law, the what was given to him in 1914 from this entity, Awas, uh, there's a reference to 11, as are all their numbers who are of us. So it is the numbers of uh, followers or people who are uh, occultists, much like Crowley. So 11 uh, has a, uh, is very relevant. 77, according to Crowley, is uh, the... Uh, multiplication of 7 times 11. Uh, it is a manifestation of what he called the septenary. And he 77 to him was written in, in Hebrew as A-Z, which to him is Oz. So 77 is Oz. It represents the goat or the devil of the tarot. And uh, for him it was a, half the formulation of sexual magic of both the OTO and the Kabbalah. Uh, there are also 77 of infernal names in Antor, Anton Sandor LeVay's Satanic Bible. Uh, so 77 is a primary number of uh, of Crowley, and it was the number of his book 11, I mean 77, or the uh, Lieber Oz, which is his rights of man that states uh, that there is no God but man, and uh, those people who impede a personal uh, person's individual freedom can be killed. 
So 77, that was of primary importance to Crowley. Also 93 that I kind of went over with were is the Kabbalic uh, uh, sum of his two important words, Philema and Agape. It's also the word of uh, Awas in uh, in Hebrew. So uh, uh, the uh, 93 is something very important to him. And 175 is the, uh, in his books, when Crowley systematized all the books that he had written, all the occult books, he applied a number to them. And uh, one through, you know, it goes up to a 1,000, but... Uh, they were all Kabbalically uh, important numbers, and 175 for him was a ritual whereby an individual as, can invoke any deity by adoration. So um, <clears throat> this was a one of his primary uh, rituals that he used uh, for ritual magic. And so those numbers are all there on uh, the plane flights, 11, 93, 77, and 175. And 11... Also, suffuses like the building, the true trade, uh, twin towers are basically a giant 11. There were 110 stories, which is an 11. And, uh, there were strange coincidences about where the plane hit. Planes hit on the buildings. Uh, the first one hit right around the 93rd floor and the second one 77th floor. So, uh, you see that somebody who designed that really took careful time to insert these, uh, satanic Crowley, Crowleyanity numbers into the event of September 11th. I guess um, it, I guess it begs the question, and you may not be able to answer it, but maybe what we can do is kind of entertain this. The fact that the the 77 and the 93 play into this in terms of the floors where these these planes hit. I mean, what are the chances that this could all be orchestrated so systematically? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I think that if you if you view that these these planes were drones, and at least in my view, that they weren't flown by any individuals, and that this was something that was planned for a long period of time, uh, that then it's likely or possible that somebody could have orchestrated these uh, these planes by their numbers uh, intentionally. So, I. Uh, I just viewed. I just couldn't get away from the fact that all these numbers that are important to Crowley, probably his prime numbers, are all suffused through the day, the day of September 11th. But uh, this is, has to do with evil as well. And I, if I can ask you just to do a setup on this, you know, I think it's fair to say, uh, in, in the old days, uh, Randy will remember this character just by my reference to him. William, you've not heard of him, but I called him the Renaissance landscaper. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was he was into like. The guy was immense. So, I mean, just to listen to him talk, I mean, I never heard about the Knights Templar until he talked about it. But, you know, he was a landscaper, and he did things, and he would tell me about the you know, Fibonacci ratio and all this, the Golden Triangle and all. And what I came to realize is that, first of all, what God means for good, Satan wants to use for evil, kind of an inverse of what Joseph said <laughs> in Genesis. But anyway, uh, the world is made of geometry. Things hang together because of arithmetic and balance. So this is a very necessary thing to our lives. Now, the Lord had a positive meaning for it. Evil has a malevolent meaning for it. And so, therefore, we'll use those same numerics for their purposes. So are we agreed in the fact that all they're doing is basically, shall we say, a malevolent turn on something that is extremely important to the cohesiveness of this planet? 
Yeah, I would say so. And I think that the mathematics clearly was uh, it was very, uh, you know, numbers were very important to him. He said the fundamentals of mathematics are the basis of the Holy Kabbalah, and that was the way the operation of representations of the cosmos, cosmos can be represented by the symbols of pure mathematics. So for him, the, you know, the numbers had universal or cosmic meaning. And uh, so somebody was going to do an operation or uh, do something like 9-11, uh, and they were uh, associated with Crowley, uh, they definitely would want to have these important numbers involved in that type of event. Now, can we agree on this as well? I mean, Satan has his minions, and those minions pretty much are heads of state and, and high-profile people. And I think one of the most dastardly families that have ever lived in the United States are the Rockefellers. And if you look at the history, and it's best to read books and material before, I mean, before 9-11 happened. Uh, and you will see that most of the people downtown in Manhattan did not want those two suckers going up. They're like, why? I mean, it was, and we said the same thing. It's like, that's obscene. Honestly, it's like two erections. What, are you kidding? And <laughs> it's true, though. It's yeah, it is. So why? Well, yeah, why do that? So my point is so, and, and it's a story that even came out on uh, PBS. PBS did two uh, documentaries. Uh, one is the uh, the center of the world and why the towers fell, which was baloney anyway, the second one. But the first one, the center of the world, talks about a history in which even a New York Times journalist at that period where they were, we were uh, trying to get enough momentum to put these up said, you know, most people didn't want this to happen, but the Rockefellers were a driving force, and what they wanted, they got. And remember, the U.N. is on property that the Rockefellers had, and they were the ones who got the bid uh, taken away from Boston and had the U.N. put up on the east side of New York. So they put these towers up, and I would also say they took them down, but that's another whole thing. But, I mean, even looking at these two structures, and even the two numbers, 9 and 11, and I would like to talk more about 9 as well, but, I mean, is it so crazy, honestly, in a world of spirituality, in a world that has gods and demons, to think that those two weren't representations of an occult uh, numerology? No, I, I think that's. Uh, I think the, they were very occultic uh, buildings, and the Rockefellers. Every building that they put up, to my knowledge, has some kind of occult representation. Uh, even Rockefeller Center, Thirty Rock, oh, is. Uh, pardon me. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, we did a thing on all the stuff that's there, the murals and the sculptures and Zeus and all these characters. Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, basically, there's a gilded represent representation of the devil right there in the center of Rockefeller uh, Plaza. It's uh, uh, one of the common representations of Satan by occultists, which is Prometheus. And that goes back to theosophy. And the giveaway that it's a representation of Satan is the uh, 12 signs of the Zodiac kind of circling this character. So there's the occultic tie, and it's gilded. And, I mean, it's absolutely creepy to think that people can go there and skate with their families in front of uh, this representation of the devil. Well, I, I did that, but I didn't know then. Yeah. <laughs> Well, nobody does. I think that that's the creepy to this is that this is a weird sculpture, but they don't really know its meaning. And you'd be surprised how many times it crops up in movies and uh, people oh, yeah. at public events there. They cover, you know, the, the ice skating rink or whatever. I mean, I think Giuliani was there for uh, the Olympics. They brought the torch by there, which just was harrowing for me just to watch that, uh, knowing that that was... Uh, but the illuminous, uh, <laughs> yeah, the illuminous torch. Yeah, exactly. So you have this illuminous fire bearer of, uh, you know, 
Prometheus, and then the, the jogger holding the same type of thing, jogging by there, was, you know, very nice coordination and structure of a uh, open faced ritual, you know. But we'll give it. So, we'll get get in the numerology, and um, I don't want to force anybody to go there, but I have to wonder now. And I'm going to ask you this, and then I have a follow-up, and I guess you could guess what that might be. But among all the numbers or the permutations of such, uh, is there a high occult fixation with 9 and 11? Well, that's a good question. I, for certain, 11 is the prime number. Uh, I don't know about 9. I tried to find the connection between 9. I know that the ninth gate is very important in a bunch of uh, ritual ma magic and masonry. The ninth gate represents the ninth gate for uh, the entrance into the uh, temple at Jerusalem. And uh, so nine is a reference to that. You know, I'm not on the inside, so I don't know, but it seems to be important. And, uh, you know, I couldn't I couldn't find, you know, exactly why it's always, you know, the nine is there. Well, Lennon made um, a bit of it uh, with nine. Uh, obviously, you know, that was that was his number, so to speak. But they consider nine, I mean, every number you hear about sometimes gets um, defined as, oh, the perfect number. But 11 certainly is huge. And Colvin has come on the show many times, and even to this day he's got other stuff about 11s. But even nine uh, has that kind of um, symmetry, shall we say, because that's the number that goes 9, 18, 27, 36, 45, and then goes back down the other side, 54, 63, 72, 81, 90. They are in verses one another. And that apparently has some mojo as well. So, uh, you know, given that, and also the fact that Valentini had been saying, uh, the brother down in Australia, that he thought that 9-11 had some kind of import because it flanked the perfect number, again, here we go, 10, with the 1 being the phallic and the 0 being the ovum, if you will, the female. Uh, any thoughts on that? I, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt it. I really don't. I really don't know. As far as my research was, eleven was really the prime. I always, I honestly tried to figure out the relevance and the meaning of nine, but I couldn't come up with anything really conclusive. Uh, but eleven, you know, was, was definitely important. But uh, like I said, nine is the only, the only thing I've ever really come up with that really, you know, was the Ninth Gate, that movie by, uh, which is full of occultism by. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, Lord, what's the director's name? The Ninth Gate. They used to show it on TV all the time. Yeah, uh, it's with yeah. Johnny Depp. Uh, anyway, so the guy who got busted, uh, with the whole sex scandal in Hollywood. But anyway, Polanski? so. Wasn't Polanski? Yeah, Polanski. Right, the Ninth Gate. Isn't, isn't that the name, title of the movie? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it is. And also, Polanski understands. Yeah, yeah, under, yeah you're right. But, but Polanski shot Rosemary's Baby into Dakota. Oh, yeah. It was one mysterious death, and of course, that's where Lennon lived, and uh, did not make the front door on one, uh, what was that, October night? Yeah, and Polanski's, uh, his movies are suffused with Satanism, and then the whole Sharon Tate thing, and Manson, there's a huge connection. There, there's those, they knew each other before that event, as far as I'm concerned, but that's a whole other story. Let me ask you this. You were talking about the Nine, <clears throat> and it kind of triggered something, um, in my mind, because a few years ago, I actually did a, a series of shows centered around uh, occult influences. It, it was largely a study I did on uh, James Hurtock, and it kind of led me into this thing about the Council of Nine, which, if you recall, 
That was set up in 1948, uh, run by Andrija Proharik, who had links as well to uh, intelligence agencies. Um, he enlisted mediums. He had Peter Herkos and Yuri Geller among his illustrious staff, and later on they were joined by Gene Roddenberry as well. And the nine seemed to play into a godhead, uh, which was, a, a, I think it was Thoth, the Egyptian god Thoth, and then the eight deities of the Egyptian pantheon. Any, any links that you see in that or anything you uncovered in your research? Not really. Uh, I mean, I did see some stuff pertaining to, you know, constant, uh, constant uh, communication with other spirits or entities, what I would call demons. And a lot of Crowley was very much into, or uh, uh, communi- you know, kind of very involved in Egyptian lore and uh, their gods. So, you know, he had his book of the law had a lot of the Egyptian gods, but I didn't see any connection between him and Puharich, although I'm familiar with that story and the Council of the Nine. Okay, uh, where are we going here with this? Well, I think we I kind of interrupted your narrative line. So we hit the nine. We hit the number sequence, and, and for the listeners, <clears throat> I'd advise if you're listening online right now, flip over to occult911.com because the, the front webpage on William's site features the cover of the book. And that illustration to me is very, very creepy um, in looking at the two towers, the two planes, uh, the 77th and 93rd floors, all of the little rifts that kind of occur here. And I just, you know, gosh, how do you get away from the fact that this is supernatural in some way? I mean, yes, man orchestrates it, and I have little doubt what you said about, you know, planes being flown remotely into the buildings and the extreme planning that went into this whole thing. But, I, you know, Crowley is such a galvanizing figure in terms of, you know, again, what I'll just call this harbinger figure, these numbers play into this in a very interesting fashion by just being, it seems to me, almost triggers. You know, I keep looking at this, and I, I don't know, I'm threading through this in a, in a way I can't even bring out in words right now. There's just all kinds of connections that are firing, but I haven't distilled it down yet. Can we go... Well, what, uh, yeah, please go what ahead. Crowley said about uh, the existence of extra human intelligence, he said, what nobody has done before me... Be, no, what nobody before me has done is to prove the existence of extra human intelligence, and my magical record does this. I err in interpretation, of course, but it is impossible to doubt that there is somebody there, a somebody capable of, combi- of combining events as Napoleon forms his plans of campaign and possessed of powers unthinkably vast. So, for me, looking at 9-11 is, uh, it's, uh, an occult, it's, that's, to me, that's the basis of the event, is it yeah, an occult influence that is demonic. The other interesting juxt, uh, juxtaposition, I guess it's not, it's a juncture, was the fact that he died in 1947, is that correct? Correct. Because if you recall, 1947 is kind of like this pivotal moment, especially in the United States. It's this post-World War II period uh, obviously, the formation of the security state of the United States, which from my position was a complete change in government. I think the United States transitioned at that point away from what we would have 
preferred to call a constitutional government, and I know we've had the arguments endlessly about that, but the pretense of the constitutional government was somewhat shunted aside in favor of this new security state. That same year as well, we had the Roswell incident. And I know that Crowley didn't really speak to extraterrestrial, but based on my understanding of extraterrestrial, there's, that's the spiritual component as well. Of, well Crowley you know, did speak to extraterrestrials. Okay. According to Talk him, to he had a... He had a uh, relationship with a being by the name of Lamb. It's in his Equinox, which is in his encyclopedic uh, uh, tome of like a repository of all of his writings. It was just a picture there. And uh, one of his followers by the name of Kenneth Crabb. The picture uh, details this kind of big-headed, big-eyed entity uh, that looks exactly like what people would term a gray alien, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot about UFOs, but uh, the picture of Lamb's in my book. And uh, one of Crowley's followers who is uh, Kenneth Grant, uh, who wrote most of his books, is inspired on the works of Crowley or by Crowley, uh, said that Lamb was a representation or a disguise that the entity AWOS could take. So right there, if AWOS is a demon, then the representation of this big-headed, what we would term aliens, is actually a demon as well, according to Grant. That fits pretty well with my take on this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it almost seems like Crowley fulfilled his mission, and it was like his life was over. He was the harbinger, and he brought in the Dark Age, which goes back to that whole gods thing that we talked about in the first half hour as well. It's, it's, you know, it's just, if I had a commentary to make on this, it would be that this guy actually fulfilled his mission on the Earth, and it seems like it migrated into the United States, and even some of the travels that Crowley had in the United States, uh, I guess they were clandestine for the most part. But uh, can we place them in the United States in that uh, that 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 period? I think during World War II. Well, we can't. We I know that he traveled under like a multiple multiple pseudonyms. He Oliver Haddo was one of his names. Uh, so he traveled around in disguise. He was known for wearing wigs and uh, makeup to disguise himself in his travels, very much like a secret agent. But uh, hey, he, I know that he was in the United States from 19, the World War One, so the period of uh, roughly 1913 to 1918. He also visited earlier than that, uh, around 1906. He traveled through the West Coast to Mexico. He came up through Texas. He stayed in New Orleans at the old Absinthe House. He wrote a book called The Green Goddess about his experiences with Absinthe. And uh, he spent time in Florida, uh, Georgia, and uh, he actually spent time up in Upper Park. He took a magical retirement up to Hudson on an island called Esopus or Esopus Island. Esopus. Esopus, yeah. So, that's, my, that's my neighborhood, buddy. Don't, don't screw that up. <laughs> I knew he was well. He spent, he spent uh, a, a summer up on Esopus. Uh, fasting and praying, he took the two buckets of red paint, and I guess there's a some type of uh, uh, passageway there with large granite faces. He took a rope and painted on both sides of the river in big red letters. Well, on one side, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, and on the other side, every man is a star. And uh, he was fed by the locals who thought he was very strange, which they were in. Remember something too, William. I mean, nothing for nothing, but the Esopus Creek, of which you speak, 
uh, and that whole area up there, too, is also the home of Woodstock, <clears throat> which was the place where the concert was um, intellectually begotten, okay? But they had to move it 70 miles to the southwest. But that, that place is also funky for a lot of reasons. But I'm just going to tell you this, and I'm being stupid, I know, but I'm sorry. Um, I, I went to school there for a while because I was exiled from colleges in New Jersey. <laughs> I went up there. <laughs> That's, yeah. And then I went up there, but I had a laugh because uh, when you were talking about what he did, um, I'm coming down alongside uh, this uh, 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 creek, and, it, and uh, somebody, I don't think it was Crowley, but somebody had gone out onto the frozen river in about two feet of snow and had walked it in the shape of giving you the finger. So I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, I'm being foolish here, but I had a laugh because it's like, man, you know, that, you know that's, that, that's a work of art, i got to tell you, that's the way it is. Yeah, yeah it's but, kind you know, of a primitive, what, uh, crop circle or something? <laughs> right, before there were crop circles. Uh, but Arthur William, you know, again, i got to say this, you know, Crowley, you're right, he's almost like a Forrest Gump, he's like a little big man. You know, one of these characters, even like in uh, Ragtime, uh, with the one character who was, um, I guess was... Um, Oh, geez, he, uh, I'm going to try to figure out, uh, Brad Duras, is that the name? Uh, you, you use a focal character to tell a story that right. somebody was somewhere everywhere, but in Crowley's case, and he's not alone with some of these people on that side of the river, um, they were everywhere, it seems, and involved in everything. But also remember, too, in that Hudson Valley, with him being up in there, I mean, again, you're upon some very heavy-duty power. I mean, you know, uh, Rockefellers are there. Roosevelt's are there. Um, Vanderbilt's. You got it. Car- yeah. yep, that's it. Van Cortland's. So, I mean, you do have a power base there. And for him to be up there, I just had a laugh. But I will say that they're all Bohemians. Innisopus, Woodstock, and such like that. So it doesn't really strike me uh, that strange. But the fact that I, I didn't know that, and you mentioned it's like, well, you know what? Uh, it fits the neighborhood and the zip code. Right. And, I mean, he, he uh, associated with the Bohemian neighborhoods of everywhere he went, whether he was in London, Paris, uh, Germany during the Weimar Republic, uh, the United States, and New York, in Greenwich Village. Uh, so he that's just kind of where his uh, trawling grounds were, basically, uh, and people he associated with. So, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for him to be in those types, and that's really where his followers uh, congregated. A lot of his followers ended up in Berkeley, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and... Uh, so, you know, just kind of getting back to Randy's point about him being kind of a prophet, he thought of himself a prophet. That's why I referred to the book Prophet of Evil. He was uh, somebody who inspired all other kind of wrongdoers, uh, you know, from his looking back to who looked back to him for uh, knowledge and kind of a uh, dark inspiration. So uh, that's why, you know, another other prophet is I saw him in the kind of uh, view of the prophets of Baal. Like uh, Baal, the Baals uh, in the story of Elijah. So, uh, you know, I just, that was kind of the reason or the rationale for the title of the book. Would you do me a favor? Uh, I, I've been taking notes, uh, and I, I would just like you to recap if you could. Uh, and because these numbers come up with other things, especially cinematically, that's another whole deal. Uh, can you just hit us on, again, uh, what the specialities are about 1177, 93, 175? Sure. Eleven, the number of magic, uh, Crowley wrote, is the number of magic in itself in his kind of primary opus about magic, which is called Magic and Theory and Practice. He says, it's the number of magic in itself. It's therefore suitable for all types of operations. 
Secondly, it's the sacred number par excellence of the new aeon or age, and uh, it's written in the book of the law. Eleven has all their numbers who are us. So it's also a it's an insignia of Crowley's followers or people who are followers of Crowleyanity or influenced by it. And then 93 is the geometric or Kabbalic representation of the two prime words of his religion, which are Thelema and Agape in Greek. 77 is half the formulation of a sexual magic and uh, the 77 names of the devil, so 77 pops up a lot. And then 175 is a ritual. Uh, that he is used to invoke any deity by adoration. So it's an invo- invocational uh, ritual. So that's basically the four uh, primary numbers of 9-11. I'm going to break in here for a second, and uh, we'll take some calls. Uh, I can't tell if we have anybody. I know We have Skype up, so you can obviously come in on Skype, and the way you would do that is watchman.live on Skype. And then the uh, live call phone number is area code 610-616-5187. That's 610-616-5187 is the caller line if you're coming in on a, on a landline or a cell phone. If you're on Skype, just Skype Watchman.live. Uh, I can't see my screen right now, so I don't know what's going on with, with Skype. I'm just, you know, I know it's going out. I know we got the call. On the, and the noise on the stream, I apologize for. We're riding hard gain tonight because of phone connections. So uh, I apologize as well for the the uh, quality of the stream. We'll, we'll get that fixed, too, eventually. Um, so feel free to go ahead and, and, and call in. And we're going to just, we'll, we'll just continue riffing on this. And, of course, my mind is all over the place tonight, and I apologize for that as well. I had, like, three hours sleep last night, so I'm not exactly the, uh, the effervescent host that I should be. Oh, you never are. What you <laughs> yeah, it's part of my charm. Isn't why, it? why should today be any different? Come on. <laughs> all right, well, I mean, the, the, one of the other things we could talk about is Crowley's connection to Hitler. I mean, we kind of went over that before, but, you know, they both believed in a feudal state. Crowley did as well. And uh, he had an elitist or uh, kind of an aristocrat's contempt for the uh, the rabble, as he would talk about it. And some of his quotes are just absolutely uh, disgusting. But, uh, you know, he believed in uh, there was never a better social system than the feudal so far as it is derived from the patriarchal. So a feudal system was not a repulsive thing for him. He didn't mind that. He also think that thought that, and this is what he acted out his whole life, was really to find uh, elites and bring them into his system. He really only recruited from... Yeah. Hi, good evening. Who is this? Oh, Doug, that was quick. Uh, I just had a few comments. Uh, First off, uh, the 9 and 11 and all the flight numbers, uh, as is, I'll explain in a minute, are odd numbers. Um, And I'll explain why that's significant in a minute. Also, if you... If you add up the numbers and reduce them to their base, which is big numerology, the flight numbers add up to two, three, four, five, the four flights. Now, the reason uh, I find it interesting that the, the, the numbers as is, in other words, 77 as opposed to five, uh, seven plus seven is 14, one plus four is five, is that we were going from a one 
century, the 19th century, uh, remember it's one plus not one plus nine, ten, then one, to uh, a very female uh, two century, the 2000s, on 2001, obviously. And uh, I think this is, and also, and in other words, uh, odd numbers are male numbers. So I, 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 the only way I could put this is um, something that Viz quoted Orwell saying is that the future is a, a boot in your face. Just imagine a boot just pounding into your face. Yeah. In other words, I think... Yeah, I well, think that, I just, that actually oh, goes to a quote by Orwell as well. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, Viz always uh, quotes Orwell on that. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, it was this... Uh, uh, Ultimately, the occult is about power and sexuality. There's there's no real way to um, kind of debate that, in my opinion, and how they get a lot of, say, other religious Christian people is kind of the draw of sex. There, there's something sexy about the occult in some some respects. So I just wanted to, to say that because I'm a... I read a lot about numerology and the cold. I'm not really a believer in anything, but I just noticed uh, that uh, all the flight numbers were odd numbers. And as I said, the odd number is the, is the male principle. So either they're balancing out the female principle, or in my theory, it's, it's the Illuminati putting uh, dominant, dominating the, this new century. This was a real... Uh, you, you know, chance for them to put the stamp on very early. So I just wanted to I add agree. that. Yeah, and you, I raise, agree. you raise a couple of really interesting issues there if you look at the numbers 2001 because you actually have the convergence of those two those two numbers, mm -hmm. the, the feminine and the masculine, which, of course, plays into all kinds of typologies seen in the luminist and Masonic lore as well. I mean, just, the, you know, the uh, ruler compass figure itself representing the male-female, and obviously we know that the occultist ideal is androgynous, the merging of the male and the female right. as well. So, uh, yeah, that's actually a very fascinating uh, uh, take that you have on it. William, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I think, uh, I think there, there's a lot of deeper understandings that, you know, uh, I, I don't know about, so I, I can't say that I'm a specialist in numerology, but uh, that's uh, definitely yeah, interesting. Yeah, you kind of you kind of need a, a little bit of a crank like me to put these. It's interesting, also. I noticed on the Wikipedia page, they basically have a start and a finish time. I guess for 9/11, the attacks, and now we have eight four six ten twenty eight. That boy, that ten twenty eight just sticks out to me. Um, that's 3 plus 9, which is 12. 8, 4, 6 is 18, 9. So, I mean, they pretty much have everything covered uh, except for one, and um, which is another interesting thing. That, in other words, they left that out because that's what it's about. It's about number one, as Orwell said, putting the boot in your face. But I'll let you take another call. Thanks. Hey, thank you for calling in. I appreciate that. Good, yeah, thank good you. take. Thank you. Thank you.
Randy, can I jump in for a second? Sure, yeah, absolutely, please. Because I want to say what he said is true, and that's one of the things I was talking about with the the Fibonacci thing. The balance in nature is of of odd numbers, not even. We all think it's even because, well, 2, 4, 6, 8, you know, everybody thinks that's like even. Uh, but odd, but it's the odd numbers that really create the balance. And that's why I'm saying that what we're dealing with is, is the absolute essence of creation, which God made. But it also can be perverted. And if you take a look at those flight numbers, uh, 77, 11, 93, 175, they're all odd numbers, but when you add them up, all odd always equals even. And I'm, I'm not trying to get crazy there, but what I'm saying is, is that balance in nature is of odd numbers. But when you when you combine odd numbers, you always come out with an even. And, you know, take that for whatever it's worth. Um, and, and, again, in numerology, we can make a lot of things happen if we uh, manipulate the data. And, and not not falsely. I mean, you can get a lot of things out of it. What we're looking at, though, here, I think, and, and that's not, you know, to say the, the core was going someplace we don't want to go. Not at all. But this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with higher powers, and we don't understand the principalities of darkness. And they use that kind of thing. Now, I'll give you an example. Are we going to freak out next year when we come to November 11, 2011? 311s, 11s are wild. I don't know. I think we're wrong, and I'm not saying that he did that, so please understand that. If you start looking for the numbers sometimes, I think, uh, you know, you can, be, you can go crazy. But we can't outthink them because they are obviously are under the greatest conspirator there ever is, and that is Satan. But anyway, I, got some I just want to make that point. Here as well. Yeah, do uh, it. Go Jordan ahead. Comstock's on the line. Hey, hello. Hey, good evening. Hey, I, you guys, I... Hold on, I'm going to add somebody else in here as well. Hey. Hi, caller. Hi, this is Light again, this, the same guy. I just, uh, I made a uh, mistake in my calculation. The start time of the 8-whatever a.m., Adds up to nine, and the finish time does add up to thirty-eight. Three plus eight. I'll let you figure out what that adds up to. So that's just more <laughs> the evidence. The evidence, the preponderance of the evidence, of the evidence of the preponderance. Thanks again. Interesting. Thank you so much for calling back. <laughs> uh, let's see. Eight and three. Uh, oh, eleven. Yeah. Absolutely. Gordon. Good evening. Hello. Um, I just I tuned in late, you guys, so forgive me if you mentioned this already, but just no out way. of curiosity, I wonder if William uh, ever stumbled onto any more corroboration of the rumor going around about Barbara Bush being the love child of Oh, oh you just touched on something. We did this in pre-show <laughs> last night. Let her rip. This is where it gets wild. Well, here's the story is that uh, Barbara Bush is supposedly the offspring of Crowley. Crowley, uh, after he uh, was kicked out of Italy uh, and his abbey of Thelema, kind of uh, slinkered back to Paris to stay with a friend of his by the name of Frank Harris. Frank Harris was a known libertine, and um, he and Crowley were longtime friends. Well, Crowley was still doing his kind of magical uh, practices, which at that time had uh, involved uh, lots of uh, use of drugs and sexual practices, and uh, one particular ritual that he was involved in required consorts to uh, basically assist him. Uh, I won't go into the details, but uh, around that time, apparently, 
uh, Barbara Bush's mother was in Paris. That's the rumor. I could never prove that, but uh, she apparently was in Paris. She The story was she acted as one of Crowley's concerts. Now, Crowley had a number of children. I think it was three or four, but he was a lousy parent. He never really followed or, uh, you know, uh, followed his his uh, his parents around. But, uh, uh, oh, God, she's missing my daughter. Hello. Hi, sir. Uh, give me one minute. Uh, so, anyway... The uh, the story is is that Crowley uh, uh, had a child with Barbara Bush's mother. I mean, yeah, Barbara Bush's mother. Barbara Bush was born, and uh, she, you know, her relationship with George Bush Sr. started at a very early age, 16 and 18. They were both very young, and, you know, that whole notion of a bloodline in the family and, uh, uh, you know, these kind of uh, familial bloodlines were very important, and the Bush family is... Uh, notorious with their skull and bones connection and other kind of satanic, dark, uh, cultic activities. So the rumor is, is that George, she's the offspring of Crowley, and so George Bush is the grandson. But there's definitely a streak of Luciferian, Luciferianism in their family, and uh, that uh, that's basically the gist of it. Well, if, if you look at photos side by side, it would be impossible for them to look more like a spitting image of themselves. They're both ugly. You know, actually, I just did that. I pulled Barbara Bush up on Google Picture, Google uh, whatever, and dropped it in beside Crowley. (laughs) Oh, my. So we can maybe entertain the thought that the spawn of Aleister Crowley were twice our uh, fearless leaders of the United States, and oddly enough, one of them is the president during the time of the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, and uh, one of the sons of uh, Barbara Bush, uh, Marvin, looks very much like Crowley did, so there's actually kind of a genetic similarity. And if Crowley apparently had a big head for his body, he had a big kind of blockish head is what they said, and Barbara kind of has that same look. If you look at them side by side, they look fairly similar. They got those bug eyes. Yeah, so. Acrocephalics. Well, yeah, it's, All right, it's I'll, a weird story. I'll let you guys I couldn't finish confirm up. it. I, I, it's very similar, but I couldn't confirm it. Okay. Well, thanks for answering that. I'll let you guys finish up. <laughs> thanks. Oh, no. You're, you're more than welcome to hang out if you'd like. What We did bring up uh, uh, Orwell earlier, too, by the way. We managed- Oh, I can, I can give you the exact quote. It's, uh, imagine a, a picture of the future. Imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. That was part of it. We actually, I think, triang- triangulated Crowley into, uh, didn't we? We connected Crowley to Orwell. Correct. Through one of his followers is by the name of Gerald York, uh, his biographers. All he uh, Orwell knew his brother when they were younger. Gerald York became a follower of Crowley. He was uh, disenfranchised from his family, excommunicated, and uh, there. Uh, Orwell definitely read a lot of. Uh, Crowley's material when he was younger. He went through a phase where he was reading a lot of occult material, and uh, some of his stuff, there's a 93 reference right in the first two or three pages of 1984. Well, and I always, it always struck me as, uh, not odd, but uh, it it fit perfectly with the story, how uh, the very opening line of uh, 1984 it's uh, the clock was striking 13, and it's military time, but, you know, he could have chosen any number, but he chose 13, because it could have chosen up to 24. Does the number 13 show up in these pantheon of numbers? I mean, not directly, but 
I guess, you know, again, we're dealing with prime numbers and uh, the number 13, which has always been associated to black magic as well, seems conspicuously absent here, but yet at the same time, I can't help but think that there might be a connection. Yeah, I mean, 13 is definitely one of their numbers, is my understanding. Well, 13, would, I think, goes back to the uh, execution uh, by uh, Otto de Fay of uh, Jacques de Molay. Uh-huh. On, uh-huh. on Friday the 13th, de Molay was uh, burnt at the stake. Uh, and I think that's where I think that's where that comes from. Now, if there's something that predates it, and I don't doubt there is, but, but I, certainly in modern I, history. I can tell you what Chuck Missler claims predates it. I don't know if he's right, but he claims that it goes back to the Passover in Egypt when the uh, the firstborn were all slain. Hmm. Well, how was 13? How was that? Well, where's 13 at with that? Uh, whatever the day, day was, it was 13 on, on whatever, okay. whatever calendar they, they were going through. That's what Missler claims. I don't know if that's accurate. No, but that was a Friday the 13th anyway that Demolay was executed, and that was also a very interesting time in France. <laughs> so, once again, numerology comes into play. Um, and, and again, we do have uh, phone capacity open here as well. Anybody that wants to call in, 610-616, boy, too many sixes in this number, 610-616-5187, no 911s in that. And on Skype, you can call in at watchman.live as well. And uh, maybe what we can do here uh, as we kind of uh, trend towards closing out for the night, William, is, uh, and, and Keith brought this up earlier, trend forward a little bit with some of these numbers. Are we now in a time, uh, if we can agree, as that caller earlier had brought up, the, the juncture point of 2001? I thought it was interesting because so many people thought 2000 was the beginning of the new century, but in fact it was 2001. That's right. Mm-hmm. And we had that we had that interesting sequence there, 2001, which brought in both the male and female numbers, and that seems to be the turning point for the age when the ruling elite, call them what you will, have declared this to be their age. I think God disagrees, but moving forward a little bit, we've got some ominous dates coming up, and a lot of people, the world is gaga with 2012. Uh, what, what do you see as well as being uh, numbers that are going to loom large for us in the next few years? I'm going to take this call first, and let's see what we have on the phone, so bookmark that. A good evening, caller. Welcome. It's Ryan again. The 13 is, do you guys call yourself Christians? Just think. Think for a second. The Last Supper. Yeah. Jesus and the Twelve. Apostles, yeah. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. But I'm sorry. I say, yeah. I see where you're going. That's what. That's where. That's where uh, thirteen. I think originally, although it probably does have a, a pre-Christianity uh, bent. And the, the reason uh, uh, thirteen is evil is because of one. That's the poor, which is dull, um, kind of dullness. Uh, fours in life are considered kind of cursed or whatever. Thanks again. Sorry to interrupt. Bye. You sure you don't want to hang out for a while? 
Sure, sure, sure. Because I know, I, I know it's. I just, no, you're uh, more than welcome to stay on the line if you want to, and, and we'll just engage the conversation. We have we have lots of room here. There, there, I just there's, there's just uh, the my pet go thing. Say that again, please. You broke up. I'm sorry. The my pet go thing. Okay. Remember. Uh, okay, oh, and you should all push. Yeah, and that what goes back to my Yeah. I mean, goat is the rep- representation of the devil. So, I mean, the, right, like I said, the, yeah. the, the Satanism suffuses the entire date. I mean, Bush, Bush's right. dad is... Uh, I, I talked to a, I talked to... A, what's funny about that is, let me tell you how bad a reputation uh, George W. Bush has. I mentioned to a female friend of mine uh, that's in the church, uh, LeVay's Church of Satan. Well, I, no, I'm sorry, she's in OTO the uh, Crowley um, church, and she said, the minute I mentioned uh, Crowley being Bush's grandfather, she said, oh, no, that's that's um, misinformation. In other words, the Satanists don't want to have anything to do with George W. Bush. <laughs> <laughs> the ugly stepchild so, of everybody, isn't he? Well, and the, yeah. The goat yeah. is the most important thing of the whole of the whole thing. Well, and uh, you have, you have G.W. Bush Jr. That's why he was yeah. reading the story about the pet goat. Right, because he's the... But he, he literally is... He's, he's the pet of the pet goat. In other words, he's the grandson of the beast reading a, a, a book on goats and one of the most evil events... I mean, certainly in American history. I mean, obviously the Holocaust is worse in, you know, in terms of people. Than, so... Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Also, uh, Crowley did his own tarot deck called the Frost right, Tarot. Right, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and I can't remember. I used to have a copy of it. I don't have. I lost it. Uh, so I would look at the nine, the ninth card, uh, the eleventh card. There's a major arcana that has twenty-two, and then there are minors. I won't bar, bore you with uh, that. The uh, the minor ones are the ones that became the the playing cards, like the ones you play poker with, uh, those became it. But you're, you're, the author is definitely right. It's just that um, uh, it's frustrating because, um, and this is where you know I hope I can add something. Uh, the, the, there are things about numerology and astrology that he obviously, you know, as we said, you can go into this and get lost forever. I studied it for about 15 years, so I understand. But, um, uh, in other words, an occultist would look at this, even if all the physical evidence added up, an occultist would look at this just by the numbers and just by the symbolism and tell you it's an inside job. Even if they had no knowledge of planes or terrorism or whatever supposedly it was, it, it, is, it is like in your face. And it's uh, revolution as a method. I know. I know Biz knows about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So it is. It is just. It is. In other words, the physical evidence that's nice to have, but the, it, the symbolic evidence is is the meat of the matter, because it's because when you start talking about these numbers, as I hope I haven't come across, you sound a little bit crazy. Um, you know. I mean, the, the physical evidence, you know, is one thing, but this is where 
this is where the the meat, the rubber meets the road. And my theory, there's two things. My my ultimate theory is is that yeah, that the Illuminati may believe this, but uh, I think it's more it's more like a an inside joke thing. Well, what's what's the what's the joke about it? Well, what's the joke to, 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 to the Illuminati? To the Illuminati, it's the inside joke. In other words, we are putting our uh, we are putting our occult stamp all over this. Yeah. Ha ha! And you and well, yeah, I mean that's that's well, I think you're right. right. Yeah. Excuse me. Hold on. Excuse me, I think you're right. They do obtain some type of statistic pleasure from it, but there's also a signaling element to these numbers. And I think I've presented in my book and just uh, this general recitation of the last two hours that there is a uh, distinct connection between these numbers and Crowley, which was the general purpose of uh, why I wrote the book. So I know that there's well, other uh, elements within, excuse me, I know there's other elements within the uh, the date of 9/11 and the events, the references to the coat and all these other uh, suspicious right. events, the travel of Bush all the way out to the center of uh, Nebraska, and led off of there for the and you know it just goes on and on. But that wasn't really the gist of what I was getting. It was breaking down the occult elements of the entirety of 9/11. I was just trying to make that connection between Cooley and uh, you know the events of 9/11 and the New Order. Oh, you've done a very good job. And the, the whole the whole point of the whole point of Crowley Crowley has also been set up by the powers that be. You know, it's like Jimmy Page and David Bowie and all these rock stars just didn't think, oh, Alistair Crowley, what a neat guy or whatever. These are little breadcrumbs to be left to be seeded in the collective unconscious. And this goes back to where the author was speaking that it, it's a signal. It, it's it's uh, also people. You, it's hard to explain. People that don't know about numerology on a subconscious level are imprinted by the terror of the numbers. I know that sounds whatever, but it, it hits the collective unconscious in a way. At least that's what an occultist would believe. So it's also it's a little bit of paprika. And the spice, you know, and also, uh, uh, Viz was uh, talking about to um, about uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, the new theory is that there was napalm in whatever the second plane was, and that's and the reason they had napalm in the second one, they knew that one was going to be on TV and had the big fireball. So, explosion. Uh, can I interject there at all? Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, no. Uh, again, going way back to talking about uh, 9-11 and what William had said. Um, yeah, uh, and of course there's something coming out probably on, on September 11th by an individual who had, had uh, filmed this whole thing uh, from Jersey City. But, but the thing is, is that, yes, if they're remotely flown, then yes, they can hit the ta the uh, fl the um, flights, the levels that they want. They can definitely target that. And we had said this a little bit in the chat room here between the three of us that if it's remotely flown, they can hit every any floor they want to. And that's pretty much right. what they did. Um, I can't say anything more about what might have been 
a, you know, excuse the phraseology, but a commanding post that this individual remarked about. I can't do anything. I don't mean to be deliberately, uh, you know, teasing, but that's going to have to ha wait until after September 11th of this year. However, uh, yeah, I mean, without a doubt, we're looking at something. And, and this is where I want to go with this, William. I mean, you delved in this, and we talked a little bit, if not a lot, uh, when we had the two hours together. And if there's anything that this means besides the, you know, the spookiness and the, the booga booga, I mean, look, I'll say this. For Christians, you have the victory. That doesn't mean everybody else doesn't count. I don't mean to sound like that at all. But, William, what I want you to speak to is this. You got into this work, and we talked about it a little bit, you and me. But we're dealing, truly, with principalities of darkness. And for a lot of people, they don't know what they're messing with. I would hate to, like, denigrate it to, like, you know, um, Ghostbusters, but, you know, mess with some of this, you know, apocalyptic stuff. And, and you did all this research. I mean, Crowley is a point person, but he is only the tip of an iceberg, for lack of better words, that we, ha we deal with and we dealt with on this planet, which probably is coming to a point of... Um, you know, uh, had them forced. You know, I know that I've been all over the place with that, but this is what we're dealing with. And can you tell us what it was like when you were doing this research and understanding exactly the belly of the beast? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's very dangerous. It's very serious. I think the implications, the implications of what I'm talking about are vast. And that, uh, you know, the... Um, it's scary. It's very scary, and I didn't like what I came up with when I started just reading. You know, I'm kind of a, a person who will do the research, but when I got to the conclusions and I understood the totality of what Crowley represented, I mean, this is a person who believed he was in contact with Satan, the fallen angel, Lucifer, and he wasn't joking. And uh, these numbers, to me, are there for a reason, and I do believe the event was an, uh, essentially an occult event. And, uh, you know, the powers and principalities and everything uh, that was stated in, you know, all the prophecies of uh, the latter days, to me, this is a part of it. And 9-11 wasn't just a part. I mean, you see the slave state, the, uh, the powers that be trying to institute a slave state. You see stolen elections, massive poisoning and pollutions, uh, wars all over the world, dislocations, mass migrations. I mean, you see an era of chaos that is something that Crowley and uh, his spiritual masters in the evil realms would have, uh, you know, or do enjoy. And uh, it's unfortunate that we have to live through this age, but I think it's in instructive and important for individuals to recognize that evil things do take place in the world, and they have to be... Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think the Christian church, in the general sense, has failed by, and I mean, I mean, the, the institutional Christian church, uh, has failed by not educating people about these uh, these darker elements of our global culture. Going going back a minute, if I can just jump in here, going back a minute, we talked in the first hour about uh, Crowley's past having to do with the Plymouth Brethren, the fundamentalist, fundamentalist religion. And it was pretty clear that they were into prophecy. Uh, Darby himself traveled into the United States to prophecy conferences in, uh, I think, the early 20th century. He was basically presenting dispensationalism at that point. So Crowley had 
obviously an intimate knowledge with the Bible, given that that was the only thing he was allowed to read for 12 years of his life, the first 12. You go to Revelation chapter 9-11, and they introduce to us the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, and in the Greek tongue is Apollyon. Do we not now begin to see a juncture with 9-11 interpreted by Satanists? And, you know, somebody had made a comment to me a while back that kind of set me back, but I understood where they were coming from when they said, doesn't the book of Revelation kind of read as a playbook for the New World Order? And what I find interesting is how these occultists have seized onto the imagery and even the numeristics of Revelation specifically to kind of, I don't know, bring about a, uh, um, you know, the end time, what we would call the end time events, but in this almost garish fashion. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I do think it's interesting. I mean, I, I, it's uh, interesting that they actually follow, you know, some of the, the statements by uh, that are left in the in the New Testament. That they Crowley himself called himself the Beast. Uh, he called his paramours the Scarlet Women. Uh, the heads of hello, hello? yeah, do you back? I dumped you. Sorry. Okay. That's okay. okay. As as a live show, ah. this thing's now a complete train wreck. So we're just going to keep <laughs> going anyway. All right, well, that's the way to go, Randy. I mean, you know. Well, let it rip. Funny. Let it rip. I, you know. Can I, can, can I, can I tell you something also? I mean, uh, it's not, not that I'm a believer, but it's Mercury retrograde right now, which affects communication. It is, it is, so, it is. Okay, uh, who else we got here? No, I, I I'm going to turn all you good Christian boys into, uh. <laughs> okay. Okay. We back on here, so, gentlemen. Okay. What the heck was that? That was uh, that was a Skype bomb. Sorry about that. For those of you who may still be listening, in spite of the tragedy that this show became technically for a few minutes with <laughs> me trying to jabber long enough to get you all, all connected again, um, I, I apologize for that. <laughs> Not a problem, Randy. Um, my name is Jason. I was uh, I was the caller that uh, accidentally uh, precipitated the Skype bomb, so <laughs> I apologize for, to everyone about that. But um, I, yeah, I was uh, calling in because uh, I, my name is Jason. I'm calling from Kansas. Interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> the whole numerology thing that's kind of been a part of my life since I was a youth. On account, in fact, uh, my name indeed is Jason, and uh, I was born on the 13th of January, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, every once in a while my uh, birthday lands on Friday the 13th, and I've caught gruff for that since I was a kid. But <laughs> nevertheless, that wasn't the purpose why I called. It was just kind of a nice breaker. Um, no, uh, the whole idea of uh, uh, Alistair Crawley and, and, and uh, something that I uh, made reference to was, uh, or I thought was kind of interesting when I originally called in the process of calling, which compelled me to call, uh, Ramsey made a, a comment about the whole culture of occultism, and I, that was the general purpose in which I called in the first place is because uh, a while back, I'd say about uh, four to six months ago, whatever the case, uh, I came across a blog page at uh, vigilantcitizen.com, uh, in particular about a, a, a rap artist, which I'm sure uh, most of the listening audience and maybe some of the the host may not be familiar with that particular uh, 
genre of music or that particular artist in, in specific, but uh, uh, he is definitely uh, into the whole occultism thing. He, uh, he puts his uh, hands in a, a triangular shape in front of his eye, representing the all-seeing eye and everything. And, uh, and the thing that, that, that got me about this particular thing is uh, uh, this particular blog page shows this particular rap artist wearing a, a shirt a uh, sweatshirt saying, uh, do as thou will, in quotations. <laughs> and it's kind of ironic because this particular uh, commentary piece that this blogger was actually uh, commenting about was uh, uh, the song that this particular artist, Jay-Z, was... Uh, uh, okay, yeah, I know. Because yeah, yeah. the payoff. Well, was uh, the name of the the song was "Run This Town," and basically the the premise of the song is uh, poses the question, "Who's going to run this town tonight?" And uh, the answer to this, the chorus of the question is, "We are." And and as a matter of fact, this guy's got such deep occult ties as to being on a record label by the name of uh, uh, Rockefeller Records. And they, it's interesting because I mean, you see the whole uh, the the occultic memes throughout the video. I mean. If you guys want to, if anybody's in front of their computer and wants to go check out this particular webpage, it's, uh, uh, vigilantcitizen.com forward slash question mark P equals 1948. Okay. Uh, so you're saying, you're saying that, you're saying that Jay-Z is a, is a, an occultist, is that what you're saying? Uh, basically, uh, we well, and, uh, I'm a, I mean, well, I'll just say that he's uh, representing occultic symbolism. I don't know. If, well, he does. I don't know I mean, he does. makes magical symbols that are right out of uh, Crowley's Equinox. He does it all the time. Yeah, uh, exactly. Triangle. He makes the sign of Hippocrates. He makes the sign of... He makes it all. He does it all, and uh, he's very much into the occult. I just he, stated, kind of, he stated that as much. Well, and I'm... I myself happen to be uh, 31 years of age, which uh, I don't know if there's anything <laughs> good, bad, or otherwise about that numerology. But <laughs> um, I'm just saying, yeah, it's it's kind of disgusting how this is definitely uh, slowly but surely creeping into the the minds. It's a subliminal. Well, it's been there. Look, uh, it's been there all along. The entire well, yeah, history yeah. of popular culture is saturated with occult imagery. You can thread back through films, music. Literature, the, you know, these guys have infiltrated all of that from the very beginning, and certainly that was the plan going back uh, to what we referred to earlier with the Rosicrucians. If you read Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, you're going to see that their plan was to seize technology as they released it. The technology is not new, the technology is ancient, it's all part of the magic occult system, and all of the entertainment industry as well is, is linked into this. Uh, we're going to move. Well, uh, just one point, Randy. Just one quick point. Yeah. It's only subliminal to people who don't understand what they're doing. I understand. To them, yeah. it's very obvious. Yeah, yeah it's so. very obvious. Um, well, that was the purpose of my call. I appreciate everybody's great. time. Uh, I'll go ahead and jump off for the wrap-up. So. Thanks, Thanks for calling. I appreciate out. you taking my call, and I'm sorry for uh, being a disturbance or interruption. No, 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 day, not at all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Have good a good night. evening. Good night. You too. Okay. Uh, and... Anything at all that we want to cover in the next few minutes is open game as far as I'm concerned. I, I had really addressed to William the question, what does all of this mean moving forward into time? Because we are, <clears throat> we are we're, we're, we're coming up on 2012, which, you know, the Mayan calendar, there are literally no shortage of 
prophecies regarding 2012, most of which I dismiss. We also have coming up on the horizon 11-11-2011. Did we cross the bridge with the 11s and the 9s and the Crowley number sequence, or do we expect to see a recurrence of that, perhaps in some new permutation? Yeah, I think that that's where we're headed. I think that you just see you're going to see a series of structured events intended to uh, create the order that uh, you know the occultists want, and that uh, you know I don't know whether it's going to actually happen on 2012 or 2015 or uh, November 11th of 2011. But uh, I think that the people who who uh, who caused 9/11 to happen to still have power in our society and in the in the world, and uh, unfortunately they like to you know have events that uh, propel people forward. And I think the final event is um, you know probably outside of our lifetimes perhaps, but uh, I think that eventually it'll be the breaking down of nation states the creation of a one-world government uh, type of slave state, and that's, I think, where we're headed. We're kind of in it today, actually. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, what? How future is that? <laughs> what made you think that, William? Right. Uh, no, but really, um, one of the Have you flown lately? Yeah, I've got to fly in two weeks, and I'm not <laughs> looking forward to it. Uh, well, geez, I don't know. Wear lead underwear. I don't know what to tell you. What <laughs> <laughs> that? That's the numbers guy, Vince. I've got I've got the question for you also, uh, but I wanted to, I wanted to uh, tell you something uh, some good news um, the, that the Illuminati are not all powerful. Yes. Uh, do you remember the the eight 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 incident with Georgia, Ossetia, uh, so, well Russia? Yes, I yes. When they had very clearly. Yes, yeah, so I very much remember that. That refers to Pythagoras the eighty eight and the chessboard pagodia. Yeah, that was the big one. And it's also eight is the number of deaths, and three eights, anything three is, is good to an occultist. And what what was supposed to happen was that was supposed to be a limited, what they're talking about now with Iran. Uh, Cheney, if you look at the, uh, was it the Kenny Bunkport uh, report or incident, uh, a B-52 armed was just flying around America, and actually, one of the pilots put an end to the nonsense, or one of the maybe uh, mid-level generals. But uh, I still believe they don't know where the the nuke is. Anyway, Cheney wanted to start World War Three on eight eight eight, but it didn't happen. Right. Thank God. So. Okay. Yeah, eighty eight is very important to occultists. If you see that movie that I mentioned earlier, uh, the Ninth Gate, there's a uh, one of the sequences has the chessboard. That's very important to occultists. That's eight uh, eight by eight squares or sixty four squares, and eighty eight was the date of that whole Georgia incident that was staged. It was basically Georgia was a proxy to us, and the Mino Air Force uh, disaster or whatever walked you know when the plane was flying around with the nuclear bomb. There was a massive cleanup job, and about eight to ten people died or were murdered uh, surrounding that whole event. So um, yeah, it's very serious and. You see that 88 is uh, very important. There's, I have a picture of Cheney sitting in front of a chessboard, and he, I know he's, he's sending his signal out. So, uh, you know, it's pretty eerie. But um, the chessboard, the, the, the chessboard is the is uh, really from the Masonic thing. Also, also real quick, 88 uh, is Kyle Hitler. That's 
some kind of juvenile teenage boys kind of came up with that because H is the is the eighth letter of the alphabet. Anyway, go right. ahead. Right. All right. Yeah, I got a long shot question out of the blue. Given that the the Beatles put Crowley on their uh, Sergeant Pepper's album, uh, William, in your research of Crowley, you didn't have to. You didn't happen to come across the name Theodore Adorno anywhere, did you? No, but I'm affiliated with Adorno. I mean, he was supposedly the inspiration. He was a brilliant guy uh, from Germany, a uh, philosopher, but uh, he was supposedly the inspiration for the Beatles. But uh, I didn't see any connections between him and Crowley at all. Okay. No, and i, I got to tell you, that whole situation, although it is very salacious and it's very intriguing, um... I had some very strange conversations with somebody over in Germany uh, who never backed up what they were going to do, but Coleman, John Coleman, in uh, right. the spirit of his hierarchy, is the person who fingered Adorno as being somebody, and, and uh, you know, and uh, what's his face, Alan what? Uh, it's Alan White, isn't it? Alan White, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, but Alan, I mean, Randy, you know that Alan knows what he's talking about in a lot he of does, ways. He does, he does, absolutely, yeah. If, but the if thing you is, hold up that... Good. If you hold up Sergeant Pepper, also there was a blog spot uh, article. Hold up the Sergeant Pepper. Try to. You probably have the album. Um, if you hold up the album in a mirror, the one of the letters, something with the letters, uh, it looks like nine, eleven in Roman numerals. Yeah, it's on the drum. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know about it. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. No, but I mean, uh, listen. I'll tell you what. Adorno, by himself, is an interesting character and more of a sociologist than anything else. Guy was brilliant, no doubt about it. He got chased out of Germany and hung out in Tavistock in England. Um, Coleman is, is the one that makes the uh, connection. But I, I, I don't want to go into it right now, but I, I would really like to, to go down that road because uh, it seems like it's not necessarily... Uh, the way it was. And understand, no. I like John Coleman. Coleman's been on the show, but understand that Coleman cannot, for whatever Back reason, it up. Yes. You and can't back you, it up. Yeah, and, and I mean, we like John. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, right. you don't give something behind it. And although right. Alan Watt would be somewhat, and, and Randy gives him credence, and I don't blame him for that whatsoever, it is a tremendously intriguing story, but we just don't know. Um, we can can I tell you what I think really happened? What they do is, what the Illuminati or cultists, whatever you want to call it, powers that be, what they, they, they didn't create the Beatles, but what they did was they used them as a vehicle to uh, disseminate these ideas, uh, certain ideas, into the culture. And that's why you, you people of your generation uh, kind of follow, you know, each change of the, of the Beatles... I mean, it was a, it was an organic thing, but it was magnified. In other words, they're like, oh, okay, this one's this one's catching fire already, and we can do some things with this. And it, whether there's something in the background of the Beatles, I, I doubt it. But I, the thing about Adorno was, I think he only wrote about Sergeant Pepper. He's the guy who said, uh, now they're doing something more than ritualistic dance music, and that somehow got turned into. Uh, oh, he wrote the Beatles, you know, I think in Coleman's fevered imagination, but that's just my opinion. Well, since you went there, and we'll close this subject with a final comment from William on that, we discussed in our pre-show who Sergeant Pepper was by speculation and the 20-year number. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, William, you want to you want to tap that real quick, and then I I know uh, Keith has one more round here because we're creeping up on the clock. Yeah, I understand. Uh, it's uh, I guess the the intro to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Lonely Hearts Club Band is uh, twenty years ago today. Sergeant Pepper told the band to play, and I haven't really personally haven't found any evidence that Sergeant Pepper is uh, Crowley, but he's rumored to be Crowley. So. Uh, that's uh, interesting, and uh, the, I mean, I think that the the album came out 20 years ago, for, 20 years from the death of Crowley. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, 40, 40, uh, 47, and then 67. Well, you, you know who uh, all the Beatles got to put somebody on. I guess they gave Ringo less choice, but um, <laughs> you know, you know which you know which Beatle put Crowley on, don't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, Viz is right. And Viz, one other quick thing: the uh, Buddhist monks and Hitler and Hitler's bunker story. Yeah. Do you know where that so- Do you know where that source from? Because I do, and I kind of want to say something about it. All right, I'll tell you what. Um, it, it's going to be a source that quotes a source. I'm not, uh, you know, going around, right. but I'll tell you this. Uh, and and Randy and William, uh, please understand this. I sat under a minister in Cheswick, Pennsylvania for the time I was out there in the southwest corner of uh, PA, and he right. wrote a number of books, and I had never, I had gone back to Jersey, I had never really considered the occult connections to the masses of war. I just was not there. But anyway, Rosio, um, footnoting somebody else's research, that's all I can say to you, was that when I the can, Russians busted in the bunker, they found the Buddhist monks. Go ahead. Right. Uh, if you, it's a great book. I got it for like twenty-five cents from uh, off the web, and it's and it's one of the most fascinating books to kind of open up this thing. It was in the late fifties. It was a French book. It's called uh, "Morning of the Magicians." And see, this is why I bring this up because it relates to Coleman. That story has never been uh, 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 backed up by Trevor. Or whatever the guy who wrote the last days of Hitler, it's never been backed up by any other. I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm just saying it, like the Coleman Tavistock thing, it only appears in this one book, and it kind of caught fire. Now, again, there's a, as I said with a Bordono writing about the Beatles, and then uh, there is a story. There were um, like Mongolian-looking Russians who kind of switched side, who were fighting. For the, or they, they may have been slaves and been yep. put to mm-hmm. put to fight. I don't know if they were in the bunker, but they were probably in, in Berlin. Again, these these things kind of. But of course, uh, you know, Lavinda and Joseph Farrell uh, wrote all about this. Yes, of course, the the, the Nazis were steeped in the occult and uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and the Aryans are from Mars, the god god of war and stuff. And that's the that's the last thing I want to say. And I really enjoy all your work, and I'm a big fan of business. And uh, Good night. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Uh, that's another show completely. Yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, just one thing. Uh, my book has 500 footnotes, so I have all my stuff is pretty much uh, laid out. Uh, I over footnoted, so if people want to yeah, see yeah. my research and where I got my stuff, you can tell. Yeah, one well, more. That's the thi- okay. That's the thing. And this ain't, I'll just say this real quick, Randy. I'm sorry. Uh, and this, these, this, these days of these kind of self-published authors are actually better sourced than a lot of where this stuff supposedly comes from, like Coleman's. But that's that's the last I'll say about that. Good night. 
Hey, good night. Thanks. I, uh, Thanks again. And, and I thought about I thought about publishing uh, through a publisher, and after a couple calls, I just realized, uh, based on my material and stuff like that, that wasn't the route to go. So <laughs> I definitely the self-published route, especially and, with this type of material, was I think the correct choice. And speaking of the book, one more time, the website is Occult Nine Eleven. Uh, we've spent this evening talking with author William Ramsey uh, about a very dark subject that I don't want anybody to think we're engaging on a salacious level because obviously there's a lot of interest and intrigue in this. Um, the point of doing this show is really, you know, hopefully to wake a few people up, make you aware of what's going on in your world and even more so what's going on in the spiritual realm around us that is roiling with all of these events that they've tried to rule out. And, you know, I'll just say this up front. Um, I'm never comfortable doing shows like this unless we let people know that there's an alternative to all this. And, you know... That's right. You know, it's very important to mention that they don't hold the upper ace. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth. He is taking this world back. And these guys, well... It's not going to be pretty, and I don't know what pit they dug in hell for Crowley, but, you know, it's pretty obvious that this guy masterminded and was the catalyst for some very, very dark times around the world, and there are millions of souls' blood on this man's hand. William, I want you to kind of uh, give us the payoff on this thing tonight in terms of how you want to wrap it up, and to thank you for spending time with us tonight on a subject that, you know, I think we just briefly broached. Well, I just uh, would like to wrap up kind of on the similar vein that you did that. Uh, even though there is darkness in the world, there is a great light, and uh, the Son of Almighty God is Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, died and rose again, and there's a promise of heaven uh, in, in the next world, and uh, it overcomes all the darkness. The light uh, overcome the darkness. The darkness cannot invade it, so uh, there is a way out, and uh, unfortunately uh, for me, in my opinion, I thought that that people have to recognize this evil and address it and at least be aware of it, just like you said. Uh, broaden your awareness to these things that uh, other people are capable of. And uh, I think it kind of inoculates you from uh, the shock and the fear that these people would like to inflict upon uh, good, decent people uh, for their own evil, nefarious ends. So, and just to, just to say that it's... Uh, you know, we live in a spiritual world, so there are spiritual solutions, and uh, I definitely recommend that um, people uh, read from the Bible themselves, look to the King James Bible, it's the best that we got, it's good enough, and, uh, you know, pray for that peace that over, you know, overcomes all, all types of evil and fear and uh, anxiety. Okay, yeah, wow, thank you for saying that. Um, Keith, Gordon, anybody else go around the table one more time? Uh, uh, Gordon, you there? Yep. Have at it, Bill. Oh, I think I've said my piece. Uh, then yeah, go I'm away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I, honestly, I have to say this, and I, I did this little thing, but we were dropped out uh, from the phone connection. But I'm serious about this. I mean, we have authors on. We always like their books, and that's okay, because we do. But this one is especially interesting because, one, as William said, he was a history major. And this thing is replete, and he, he is as um, 
I guess, um, fastidious about sites as Barbara Tuckman is, and to use your name, William, with Barbara Tuckman's is high praise. But anyway, uh, Thank you. well, but I'll tell you, it also reads with some kind of humanity, and so it's not a dry thing. It's not like trying to read the phone book. And you did a great work there, honest to goodness. And you also opened up something which, of course, we can never deal with even in the, what, the three hours we try to do here, and that is understand what you're dealing with. And my, my whole thing has been with the Patriots and such, folks, you're not, you can't beat this back with guns, okay? We're really far beyond that, all right? But the victory is ours. And I don't mean to be exclusive, uh, exclusionary in the sense that, well, if you're not Christian, you know, well, but the thing is, you're right. It's, it's a spiritual world, and for some reason, sometimes people just can't figure it out that on the good side of the ledger, we win. And we want everyone to win. Uh, but we know that's not going to be the way it is. And then you doing this work here, and you said also that it came at a certain price, because when you go in and you take a look at that evil, Ooh, uh, yeah. it's not pleasant. And, and you work through that, and if you want to you know, just address that, I'd appreciate it. And also, this discussion is not over. Hopefully, we can all get back together at another time. But the work is seminal, especially as we approach, obviously, the ninth anniversary. Go ahead, William. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's stressful. I didn't enjoy writing it, and there was a lot of hand-wringing about putting the material out and, uh, you know, how people receive it. But I think I opted on the side of just trying to view it from a humanistic sense of this is a, a really evil monster who was um, enraptured by evil spirits and, uh, you know, I thought it's very important for Christians and any, everybody to know that there, these type of psychopaths walk the earth like Crowley and Hitler and uh, people who are willing to uh, subject other human beings to misery and death for their own, you know, short-sighted goals. So, for me, I think it's a, it's a troubling book. I didn't like it. Writing it uh, caused me a lot of grief, but I think it's if people can pass through it and you know really pray, really pray up uh, when they read it, I think it's uh, you know broaden your awareness and hopefully uh, bring you closer to the Almighty. Yeah, that's Great a job. good that's a good point. Being prayed up and 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 you know really allowing the good side of the spirit world to speak to you about this darkness. And I will say this, I, I, <clears throat> I'm actually reading this book in the Kindle version. I'm looking forward to getting my back-ordered Kindle from Amazon. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm going to actually be taking this with me in my travels to get through the whole thing, and I, I want you to come back at some point. Um, the book is by no means an academic tome. It is extremely well done, uh, very well annotated, and lots of graphics, which I really appreciate because I'm a comic book fan. So, um, you know, by no means is this a dry read. This is this is a book that will grip you. It's written in a style that uh, kind of engages the subject, and you you get drawn into it, but in a good way. And so I uh, highly recommend the book, and I'm not pushing that. You know, I think, I think as Viz pointed out, this is kind of a seminal work because it really mm -hmm. goes from the standpoint of somebody who's writing it from a Christian perspective, and that's sorely needed in this world. I think we're going to wrap it up at this point. Uh, if you guys would stay on the line and humor me until I get through the bumper music so I have a clean <laughs> recording, uh, I'll talk to you on the other side of, of this uh Rather fascinating evening together, and I apologize for the technical glitches. Our studio has been 
torn apart and put back together, and I need more duct tape. So we'll try and get it right the next time. For uh, all my guests, for the callers out there, thank you. You guys came in with some really great stuff. I thank you. God bless you all. And uh, we'll meet again in the same location in another time. For The Watchman Live, I'm Randy Moggins. Good night, and God bless.